Are we ready? Yes. Then let's kick out the jam. What's that? Well, it's there's a, there's a song called Kick Out the Jams by MC5, but it's not that. Know, we, we're not going to be playing that, are we? No. <laughs> no I played that once by mistake. Really? Well, when? the KLF version. Okay. Yes, yeah, it's the, it's the KLF the, version yeah, that's no, confrontational with no, the MC5 version. The KLF track starts with, and now it's time to kick out the jams, and then there's a reverse loop of the offensive section. Okay. okay? And... Uh, you just had to make sure that you had the one with the with the reverse, reverse section. loop, and I played the wrong version. Uh, so it says now time to kick out the jams, melon farmers. Melon farmers. Um, and I thought, oh, that's a bit <laughs> that's a bit bad, isn't it? And then uh, the head of music rings the studio phone and says, "Take it off, take it off. There's another one coming." And I said, oh, "I don't think so. I don't think." Oh, oh there was. <laughs> oh, there was. Yeah, that's okay. So I took it off. So. The... <laughs> So yeah. No, the one that I was referring Why are you talking to talking about them. The one that I was referring to is that there is a there is a song called Kick Out the Jams on Do you remember Kenny Everett The World's Worst Record Show? Yes, I do. Okay, fine. Which weirdly enough had some really good stuff on it. Specifically, it had Surfing Bird. Okay, by the Trash Men, which is not one of the world's worst. It's one of the world's best records, but it was, you know, mistakenly identified by somebody's. That was on there, really. That was on there, along with you know things like that that terrible version of a lover's concerto. I want my baby back. Nervous. That was the number one. That was that was the number one. That was considered the most appalling song of all. The most appalling song of all time. Nervous, nervous confusion, transfusion. Um, uh, But there was also a song by somebody who wasn't the MC5 called Kick Out the Jams, which which began. Is everybody ready? That's what I was doing. Anyway, never mind. It was a very, very niche wow. reference. But I was bought that. I was bought that record for Christmas because it was that was what happened with Christmas. You would get a Kenny Everett record, and um, and I just remember playing Surfing Bird over and over again and thinking, this is not one of the world. This is one of the greatest records ever made. Do you think Surfing Bird can be included in this show, or uh, yeah, I surfing- want my baby back? Well, Surfing Bird's a better record. I want is, my baby. I want my baby back. Was considered the world's worst record on the world's worst record album yeah but do you remember how it went i know i remember how it flashes. i want yeah oh dang pay dirt i want my baby back but the thing is it knew it was it was deliberately terrible yeah. that was that was the problem with that is that there were some things on them that were terrible like that version of oh gentle is the rain i don't think they knew that was terrible but the problem with but the you know i want my baby back they did know it was terrible there's a lot of one there's like th- this pullover that you gave to Jess me. Conrad. Jess Conrad. I think he's got two tracks. I am where he has. I'm wearing constantly, soft and warming. It will always be like the true love you'll always give to me. When I touch it, do you do requests? I feel you near me. We could do if you want Mark to ruin any particular <laughs> song. Just let us know, and it can be a regular request slot. I've still got that that album. Do you remember we had uh, an email last week? From Holly Cox, age 10, who was complaining about her dad with an embarrassingly loud laugh. I do remember And that. suggesting that it actually was breaking our code. Yes, I do remember. Well, here's an email from Holly Cox's dad. Dad. <laughs> who's called Kit Cox, which is quite, quite a cool name. That actually. does sound like a 70s action hero. Dear Tink and Tonk, LTL, FTW, father to an embarrassed daughter, best friend to a surgical colonial commoner with a strangely code-compliant pager. I do know that I laugh a little louder than the average bear and I'm appropriately mortified that my code compliance might be called into question. The truth is I mostly don't notice it. Sorry, Holly. The only time I really noticed and duly reprimanded myself is strangely related to our Badwater Basin train of tales. So we're going back to Badwater Basin. 
All roads lead to bad water. Stovepipe wells. Stovepipe wells. By the way, that marathon, I'm reliably told by child number one who does this kind of thing, that it's done in one day. That ultra marathon. Really? Stovepipe wells, bad water basin, all that, it's done in a day. And it, but it, wasn't it, didn't you say it was something like a, a how many miles was it? Know, it sounded Some impossible. Some staggering amount of... Holidaying in America, we headed to the melty, hazy land of Death Valley with our, <laughs> with our air con off. Melty, hazy land. On the way to the neon cathedrals of Las Vegas. As you drive up from Stovepipe Wells through Furnace Creek, out of the valley you come across the town of Parump, Nevada. Parump looks somewhat like Moss Eisley Spaceport in Star Wars, <laughs> with added tumbleweed and desperation. <laughs> The first store greets you with the whole side of the wall painted with the slogan, Porn, Guns, Ammo, God Bless America. By the way, I should say it's P-A-W-N. Oh, right, fine, fine, fine. Okay. The words painted across the background of a faded and flaking American flag. It only gets worse from there. As we passed through, we commented on the desolate back end of the American dream. This is quite a profound email already. It is. This is like Hunter Thompson. Sure, man, uh, some months later, we were watching the fabulous Mars Attacks at our local popcorn plex. Great film. My chuckle muscle had been nicely warmed up. When the Martians finally land, they land in Parump, Nevada. The fine American general overseeing the landing comments, why do these things always have to happen in the worst towns. I've actually cleaned that up. Yes. A bit. Uh, at best, this was a mildly funny line. However, for me, the mere mention of Pa Rump Nevada, <laughs> with its porn, guns and ammo connotations being singled out by Tim Burton as the most god-awful place for the Martians to land, melted me into what can only be described as uncontrollable fits of laughter. At a moment when silence rang out around the rest of the auditorium, mm-hmm. after some time I finally noticed the burning eyes of my fellow audience members and managed to bring myself back to some form of decorum. So apologies to my fellow audience members and to the people of Pa Rump, who I'm sure are lovely. The trouble with having an embarrassing dad, though, is that it's just the same as having a dad. Some embarrassed with excessive laughing, others by wearing ridiculous clothes, some by removing trousers in the cinema. <laughs> but we love each other all the same. Anyway, thanks, Kit Cox, which is the best name, I think, that we're going to have. Best name, Evs. Uh, Amanda Graham, who's a colonial commoner out there in Auckland. Um, I feel the need to join my fellow listeners who've recently written out to their nearest and dearest for violating the Code of Conduct. In this instance, the perpetrator is none other than my own sweet two-year-old daughter, Matilda. Whilst there is no doubt that Matilda broke the code, I must confess to being quite proud of her behaviour under the circumstances. Last weekend, we took Matilda to a family-friendly 10am viewing of Despicable Me. Matilda was well-behaved and sat... Did you have a pause there for me to go... Uh, Yeah, I might as well. Pregnant pause. Matilda was well-behaved and sat quietly through the previews, only murmuring a soft, yay, when the My My Little Pony popped up, and a fairly restrained, ooh, ninja goes, for the Lego Ninja Go movie. Then the preview for the Emoji movie came on. We were only halfway through when young Matilda had clearly had enough. She sat bolt upright in her seat, slammed the armrest down and shouted, no, at the top of her little lungs. Excellent making me, her father and several other people nearby jump in surprise. So I appreciate this is a clear violation of the code, but I hope in this instance no, that's you may still fine. be generous enough to pardon. Perfectly fine. That is absolutely fine. It's a trailer as well, anyway, so... Yeah, yeah, exactly. That, do the rules apply for trailers? Well, they do in as much as, you know... Yes, but when it comes to the trailer for the Emoji movie, I think all, all bets are off, aren't they? Uh, Sophie Griffiths uh, has been with us. Uh, I must write to you... Post- has been with us... Uh, what does that mean? Sophie Griffiths is with us in an email. I don't know. It's, I just that's, talk. That's very clerical. Okay. And Sophie Griffiths has been with us and 
we <laughs> we feel her presence amongst us. <laughs> oh Lord, we thank you for Sophie Griffiths and her ministry today. And as she did right in the book, yeah, what is it? What is it? What is it? The book of uh, Sophie, <laughs> chapter one. Bring. What? No, I'm just trying to remember. What is it? Bring hither, brother Maynard. Oh, that's the, the, you mean the the, the, holy, hither, the holy hand grenade of Antioch. Bring hither the book of uh, something or other. Never mind. Yeah. Anyway, very very entertaining that section. I must write to you post haste with a terrifying tale of exercise and rain. You see, as with many members of your intelligent and much loved church, I like to call myself a runner. I have a half marathon at the end of October. And while I may have done this particular route, Stroud in Gloucestershire, before, I have not done it for a few years and have not really done much distance running at all. So we come to yesterday, wherein during my lunch break I scuttled away from my desk and down to the depths of the building, otherwise known as that grotty little shower room. Keen to get four miles under my belt and to make a start to my much put off training, I rushed to change and get out there and just do it. Between leaving my desk... <laughs> Why do you keep leaving these pauses? <laughs> between leaving my desk and getting my kit on, the rains had come and they were of epic biblical proportions. Remnants of Storm Eileen, I believe. I was gosh darn well going to go running, so leaving my spectacles in reception, running in the rain is all very well, but running in glasses is... It's impossible. Futile. Yeah. I dashed out into the storm before I could change my mind. With your dulcet bickery tones in my ears, I could almost ignore the stabbing raindrops at my face and the sopping, clingy T-shirt at my bosom. But then the radio show finished and the end of the podcast began, if you're still with me. Mm -hmm. At the crossover point, I just so happened to be on a desolate track behind the remaining three chimneys of Didcot Power Station, with the moody skies and dark, overgrown trees adding to the chill of the rain. A brash... It's where you do your higher I know. It's very good. OK. Go on. When a brash... Hiya, Georgie! entered my consciousness and my extremities tingled with fear. <laughs> Ever since watching the 1990 It miniseries at the age of 11, uh, I have had both a fear of clowns and a fear of the sound of rain trickling into drains, <laughs> which is quite target. That's very good. Whilst yeah. there may not have been any well, that's storm... A, that's a phobia that it's going to be possible to live with, isn't it? Yes. Whilst there may not have been any storm drains on my running path, there was certainly the sound of trickling rain and also the distinct possibility that I would encounter a Sophie-eating clown before I could get back to the safety of that grotty little shower room. That is, until I started imagining blood streaming from the shower. Anyway, so I just wanted to thank you, really. My pace quickened and I managed to get back to work in a better time than I'd expected. Hurrah for you. So if you're running, like right now, uh, and you need a little impetus to uh, just add... Uh, a fantastic time to your day. Yes. So what you need to imagine is that just behind you, there is a clown, a rather strange-looking clown with extraordinary hair who's just come out of the drains, and he has something to say to you. Hiya, Georgie. There you go. <laughs> Do you think that'll work? I think so. Okay. Yeah, but that was like when um, we did, we were doing... Bah, bah, and, um, mm -hmm. I mean, from the programme, uh, she was in... Was she in Australia at that point or in New Zealand? And she was out listening to the podcast, you know, just to kind of keep in touch with us, as she liked to do. And then it, and there was a bird or something that she was listening in one ear and then it was a bird that made a noise that was very, very similar to...
I think this is quite a good idea to leave gaps and then okay. people can actually join in the conversation so they could say, no, that's a really good anecdote, Mark. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. I hope Simon chips in quite soon. Which I'm going to do here with uh, one more email before we start the show for real. Okay. For from, reals. For the, from Louise, age 54. No jokes. My usual weekend excitement includes my weekly shop listening to your podcast. I take my shopping trolley, I hit the liquor store, the drug store, the bread store, the fruit market and the grocery store, and I smile and chuckle and have a pleasant time. Today I was nearing the end of the podcast when an interesting order, she goes to the liquor store first yes. and the drug store. <laughs> That's right. Just yeah. helps her get through all everything else. <laughs> and then at the end, the groceries. There was something I forgot. Oh, yes, food. I think your priorities are interesting. <laughs> I was nearing the end of the podcast admirable. when I got home and I emptied my trolley listening to Mark try to remember if he'd ever worn fishnets. A classic, yeah, okay, that, that, that really, out of context, that sounds worse than it was. A classic podcast moment. The food was put away and my grapes and strawberries were washed and stored. <laughs> and again, really? You don't, you don't wash grapes and strawberries and then put them away, do you? Well, yes. You put but, them away and then when you want to eat them, then you wash them. You don't wash them and then put them in the fridge. No, but actually it would make a lot more sense to wash them straight away because then you can just eat them out of the fridge rather than having to do that thing, but you get them out of the fridge and then you have to go through all the business and wash the things and blah, blah, blah. And then they'd be wet. What you want them to be is dry when you eat them. I know, what a trial. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I then turned to grab the toilet paper to put it in the washroom, only there was no toilet paper. I searched my small apartment, wondering where I could possibly be hidden 12 rolls, 12 rolls of toilet paper, only to come to the realisation I'd left the toilet paper in one of the many shops I'd visited after purchasing it. This is the second time in two weeks I've mislaid my toilet paper whilst listening to your podcast. <laughs> is it probably because I'm too preoccupied by the DVD of the week or TV movie of the week, a movie I'll not be able to watch because I live in Toronto? I think you can still that watch ex- movies in Toronto. That explains the liquor and drug <laughs> I can tell you that having given up on toilet paper, I sat down with a beer and continued listening. Life couldn't be too bad if I had Mark and Simon to listen to. My favourite thing in, um, well, one of my favourite things in uh, Fire Walk With Me is when they go through, you know, from the from the sort of lovely Americana thing and they go into the club and they go through this door, which is kind of like they've got into the hellfire and brimstone and the sign says, welcome to Canada. That's very good. Yeah. I was Anyway, Louise continues. Oh, there's more, sorry. I, I was a full 10 minutes in before I realised the podcast had ended and, and actually restarted. My conclusion is that I'm getting old and forgetful and that your dulcet tones will continue to be a comfort in my dotage and that I miss the shouty lady, descending chimes and everything that made it clear that the podcast was over. Can we can we do our own version of shouty lady? Can we not do our... You know, if there isn't an official shouty lady, can we not do one? Well, so, Robin, say that again. A few weeks ago, but if, feel free to do it again if you want to. There you go. So I think we should do... We, we should take it in terms to be shouty lady. Okay. But then, do they? If we be shouty lady, do they not put shouty lady on after it? Is no, I don't think so. Oh, fine, okay. We could. Op- the shouty lady's probably gone to LBC or something. We could. We could offer it as a listener thing, as a, a bonus, couldn't we? If you'd like to be the shouty, oh no, we can't because that's a competition. You can't do that. But Why it can't was we do fair, a competition? It's a very because it's. We have to go on a course. It's too much like hard work. Really? <laughs> anyway, uh, should we do some surfing bird? Oh yes, brilliant. Go on. Well, everybody's heard about the bird. Honestly, what a brilliant opening. Genius. Oh, 
It's brilliant. It's like almost a perfect pop single. I think it's. I think what we need is a skiffle version. You can't do it because the whole thing is because it's all turned up too loud and it's all too distorted. It's the best moment in Full Metal Jacket, the Stanley Kubrick film. Isn't but it's it? on one note. No, so. no, don't take it away. Don't think we're gonna have the really. We're gonna have the the, the bibbly bobbly bit in a minute. It's not all on one, but that's the three chords. Here we go. Bibbly bobbly bit. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 That's Robbie's just pointing out that everyone's thinking Family Guy. Stop banging the table. <laughs> oh, not bang the. You can look. Look at me. But it is true. Him, him at the table doing the surfing bird thing. He's and in fact, even I, who don't watch television, even I've seen that. Because we have every, to stop. Everybody in the world. We have to stop. America. Why? Stop. Why? Thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Oh, you're not talking to me. You're talking to the audience. I'm just to, uh, just in general. That's fine. Okay. Thank you for being here, Mark. And Thank you. you. And your role as contributor is most valid as ever. Excellent. Thank you very um, much. What is up with your bad self this week? Well, my bad self is quite well. I think not so. My not so bad self. Excellent. Well, that's very good and very formal. <laughs> as your not so bad self. Uh, well, it's you know it's pretty bad. I notice you're still dressed as a ragamuffin, ninja warrior. Ninja I think warrior. Is the word you're looking for. Uh, John Wilders. We start with you. All right, John. Uh, this Friday... Got a new motor. Is that what you were doing? Well, it would have been a little bit more extreme, I think, if I'd done the Alexi sale. OK. But it was just... All right, John. Yeah, OK. It was a little bit London, but not too much. OK. This Friday, I'm going to be listening to last week's podcast and this week's live show on the approximately six-hour car journey from Newcastle to Southampton for my second year at Southampton University. I'm studying BA film. OK. My dad has very kindly volunteered to drive me down, which is what dads kind of do, and mums, since there's no way I could fit in all my records, Blu-rays and assorted rubbish that I brought up for the summer into one flight or train journey. Interesting that, that John, a student, refers to records. Yes. Because there aren't many people who have... Record. Although no, there is an increasingly large number. Vinyl is making a big comeback. The only time he ever listens to the show, this is his dad, yep. uh, is when we make these mammoth pilgrim, pilgrim, pilgrimages... Would you like from, to have another, another run at that, Simon? ...from the north to sunny Southampton and vice versa. At the beginning and end of each academic year, even though I have somewhat forced your good selves upon him, he does enjoy listening, remarking, they're good, these two, on our last <laughs> trip in July... If I'd be very honoured if you could give him, he's called James, a hearty wass-up, because it would not only lift our already considerably lifted spirits, but it would also give me another running gag that I can explain to him. Uh, so, John, thank you very much. Hope your uh, new term, new year at Southampton goes very well. All right, James, thank you very much. We are on every week, you know. You don't have to keep this as a special treat. And just imagine what a bond you'll have with your son if you actually could be bothered to listen every week to this show. Thank you very much. <laughs> And like so, everyone, I love the way you're using thing. a kind of parental blackmail thing in order to get more listeners. Yeah, so now just, I, that, that reminds me. You'll be listening every week, Dad, won't you? Oh, yeah, when, I, right. when we used to busk in, uh, in London's busy Covent Garden, who's there was we, uh, the, 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 the particular skiffle band that I was in back then. There was when you have this, the, people have sort of like barker banter, they have banter to make people, oh, I hate that word, uh, to, you know, make people put you know, give you money, you know, as people go around bottling the crowds. So and you could take. Bottling the crowd is... Don't walk away, give us your cash. Exactly. And the usual thing about 
about you know get, get, get your take your contribution out of your pocket, fold it carefully, you know, sort of thing. But <laughs> the, but there was one I remember somebody used, and we also God, that's that's really. And they said, said uh, children, uh, remember, if your parents won't give you any money, that's because they don't love you. And it got exactly it, it, that face that you just wow. pulled. It got exactly that response. Was some people going? No, I'm sorry. I think that's actually overstepping a boundary. I think you. I think we could start with a, a, a little busked opener. You should bring in your double bass so you could slap. I a did little. bring my double bass. I, I played know. with Tom Hiddleston. I know, but you could just play it anyway. It would be quite an interesting and cheap opening. To well, we could have like a theme tune that was me playing the double bass. Here's a cheery email. Oh, that's, that's a no, apparently. Then from Tom Worsley, back in. May 2015, I was one of the first people that Mark kindly reassured with the now immortal phrase, everything will be all right in the end. Oh dear. I had just been dumped by text. Oh, yes. OK, hello. How are you doing? So we fired a fart gun at the dumper on national radio. We did. And everything just got better from there. You read out another letter from me that Christmas, the sequel, if you will. Yes. I had met Claire the most beautiful, kind, inspiring person I've ever known. Please tell me that this is going to have a happy ending and is not going to suddenly... Unfortunately. Oh, no. No, it's all right. Okay. Well, now, the trilogy concluded. This Saturday, Claire and I are getting married. Return of the King. We may, That's we fantastic. may not be able to listen to your whole show live this week as we'll be at the church rehearsing on Friday at three. Like Mark, I cry at everything, so I'm hoping to shed most of my tears then rather than at the real service on Saturday. Claire never cries at anything except once watching Gladiator. <laughs> Maybe I'll play some of that during my speech, see if she gets emotional. Anyway, thought I'd let you know, as when I first wrote to you, I was feeling lower than I'd ever felt before. Now I'm feeling as high as Mary Poppins' kite. So uh, many thanks and very best wishes to you both. From Tom Worsley. I mean, that's amazing. That is, in many ways, a sort of whirlwind romance. If it's happened within the within the the, the time period of me starting to say it'll be all right in the end, I mean, that's that's marvellous, isn't it? That's yes. obviously just like it's gone. Yes, of course you are invited. Do come by for a drink. Our day is filled with movie references. That's very kind. Don't know where you are, but you know, don't know where where the church is, which is yes. conveniently left off. He didn't really want. Doesn't know. Oh, did, did did I did I leave off? Did I forget to post the invitation? I'm so sorry. Really, I because you were really, in, I, yes, oh. I, there was a t- there was a table, there was cake for you, and everything. Box office top that? ten in just a second. Um, but first of all, a very important correction from Ella Grace Smith. Okay. Last week, I wrote an email to you. Uh, it was my review on Logan Lucky, and I was super happy when Lucky my Logan. email got read out. Yes. However, you misinterpreted my usage of the word dramatically. Do you remember she used the word dramatically? Yeah, I do, I know. And then loads of other people... Yes, I'm going to definitely use that word. If anyone had seen the film and paid attention to Jack Quaid as Joe Bang's brother trying to be clever, he, he actually uses, uses the word, the word dramatically. dramatically. However, I'm glad it's now a thing. Oh, you know... Actually, now you say that, I feel like the stupidest person in stupid town. Of course that word is in the film. And how... You must have been yelling at the radio when we were saying that. Face palm is what she was doing. Face palm. Can you believe these people are so stupid? No, I actually can't. And now I'm, I I feel like I've actually I've grown several inches shorter in stature. How terrible. Huge apologies. But... Thanks, Ella Gray-Smith. Love the word. Yes, we should try and include it uh, uh, at least three times yes. uh, before we finish. Yeah, so uh, our special guests today are Ed Izzard and Dame Judy Dench are going to be talking Victoria and Abdul after the 2.30 news and sport. Uh, box office top ten, however, is looking like this. Detroit, 
is well, it number 10? I'm a really big fan. I think it's a, a very well put together film. I know that it divided uh, critics and it obviously hasn't taken the box office by storm. But I think Catherine Bigelow is a terrific director. It's a story that I wasn't aware of before I saw the film. Uh, I think John Boyega is great in it. I think Will Poulter is great in it. I think it's really smartly edited to give you a sense of moving through a crowd of events to something, you know, which is which is the sort of central focus. I, I thought, Have you seen it yet? Nope. You, I, I think you'd really like it. I, I think I'd really like it too. OK, fine. Then that sounded like Winnie the Pooh. I think you'd really... No, actually, no, it didn't. No, it sounded exactly like Dougal and the Blue Cat. Yes, well... Except we li- it was more interesting than Dougal and we the Blue like Cat. We like it, don't we, Dougal? And we're glad you like it too. The Limehouse Aren't Golem we, is at number nine. Oh, we're delighted. Over the moon. Limehouse Golem is terrific. And again, another film which I think, you know, it's a shame that it's not found a bigger audience because I think it's a really, really intelligent adaptation of Peter Ackroyd's very difficult-to-film novel. Great uh, performance by Bill Nye. Brilliant performance by Danny Mays. Brilliant performance by Eddie Marsan. And a sort of twisty story that talks about on stage, off stage, real life, invented life, you know, mixes fact and fiction and does so in a way which is theatrical and bold and very, very enjoyable. Uh, Stephen, Stephen Oak says, um, I agree with almost everything Mark says about this film. Daniel Mays and Bill Nye are excellent and well cast with obvious chemistry. The musical setting is eerie and well done. The pacing is spot on. It's not overly gory. This is a good thing. The support cast... Although although it's interesting that there is a lot of gore in it because it's kind of theatrically removed. It doesn't feel overly gory. But when you look at what's actually on screen, it is gory. Yeah, it is quite gory, I think. The support cast are mostly great, though personally I thought the Dan Leno character was over the top and a bit silly. Oh, I disagree. And the surprise... mm Mm-hmm. At the uh, mm, mm, it was a bit naff, okay. but I guess that's all in the source material. Overall, a fantastic film that kept me and my better half guessing until the final third, when we both figured out everything that we needed to figure out. Yeah. I was annoyed that it only charted at number nine. I expected top end. Doesn't do the film justice. It really doesn't. I would urge people to see this film on the big screen while they can. There we go. Couldn't agree more. Uh, Peter Urquhart, the good lady librarian and master student her indoors and I, uh, went to watch The Limehouse Girl at the good lady's request, she being a huge fan of murder mysteries and police procedurals. We both very much enjoyed it. Bill Nye did an excellent job and his measured tone provided calm in the chaos that swirled around him, with Daniel Mays providing strong support as his constable. The various suspects were all suitably mysterious and unlikable to various degrees, lending uncertainty to who was up to what. There was discussion in Mark's review of what to make of the twist and how obvious it was. For my part, I guessed. Um, yeah, but but, that, but but that's the point. The point is it's satisfying because you can see that that's good, where it's going. The good lady next to me didn't work it out at all. More oh, yeah, I okay. felt that the film more than earned its thing, mm-hmm. but I might otherwise... Mm-hmm. Anyway, <laughs> the cinema was near empty and it appears the film has garnered mixed reviews, so I'm commenting while I can. Yeah, it, it is a shame. I, th- I wish more people were rushing to see it. Uh, Logan Lucky is Lucky Logan. Great. It's dramatically, um, it's fun, it's flimsy. It's not, it's not great. It's, it's kind of, it's entertaining in a, in a, in a sort of throw. As I said, it, it's a film that reviews itself when a line in which somebody says it's like Ocean Seven Eleven, and that is what it's like. Uh, Despicable Me Three is still hanging on in there at number. Yeah, seven. I mean, it, is there anything else to say about it? How many weeks has it been in the charts? Eleven weeks in the charts. I think, you know, I I could make the bottom joke again, but even I'm tired of it. Good heavens! <laughs> no. uh, Wind River is at number six. The interesting thing with Wind River is it's it's very much a film about its environment as opposed to its particular sort of murder mystery narrative. Um, it's 
described by its writer-director as the third part in a trilogy about American frontiers because he wrote um, Sicario. Actually, I think Sicario is a really, really terrific film. And um, uh, and it's it's about sort of people at the edges of society, people forced to live in a land where, as uh, as the writer says, where, where, where no one should have to live. And it's as much about the background detail as it is about the foreground story. By the way, before I, I've got some Wind River... Uh, emails yeah. just on the subject uh, of Logan Lucky. Yeah, uh, Taron Edgerton is on the show next week, right? Talking about Kingsman, uh, the Falk Kingsman, the Golden Circle. Yes, and uh, and I've seen the film, and I think I, I don't know if I'm allowed. Oh, I don't know. Did I sign something? I can't remember. But there is a there is a link between Kingsman. Yeah, because I I had this. Uh, I've brought this up in the conversation with with Taron, which you can hear next week. Logan Lucky, Alien Covenant, and Free Fire. Unbelievable! Oh yes, no, you said I know what it is. Unbelievably, yes. yeah, unbelievably, the yeah. music of John Denver again. There is why and, and, and um, did, why is it? Why is it? How that, that's four movies in six months feature the work of John Denver after none for decades. Yeah, it's really strange, isn't it? And, and when you, whenever you've asked anyone about it, they've said it's completely coincidental. Yeah. But at the time that the movies were in production, no, you know, nobody else. Nobody yeah, you, thought, you, would, you would imagine that that it must be that it's coincidental. Yeah. Either that, or they've all just fallen out of copyright. I also remember, I know that. maybe maybe that's true. No, it's not true. It's not true. But Ben Wheatley must be, I think, the most annoyed because he, I think, he must have thought of it first. Yeah, and it's such a big part yeah. of Free Fire as well. Anyway, Wind River. Yeah, Harry in Leeds. During the film, I was fully immersed in the story and very much enjoying it, as much as you can enjoy the subject matter in this film. Well acted, directed, and produced modern western. However, it wasn't until I got home, the movie still lingering in my mind, that my issues started to manifest themselves. Okay. The main message of the story seems to be that the native peoples of America are still, to this day, the forgotten people of America. Yet here, once again, we have Jeremy Renner, a white male hero, even on occasion lecturing the inhabitants of the reservation on how they should be behaving. I believe Taylor Sheridan's intentions regarding this message were good. I just feel they were poorly executed. I also feel that Elizabeth Olsen was wasted on this film, her FBI agent... Could have been anyone. She was given no depth, backstory or character development. She deserves better. This is a film I was definitely on board with initially but became more difficult on reflection. I think the problem about the Jeremy Renner character being so much the, the you know the instrument of sorting things out is definitely a problem and you're not the first person to, to, to bring that up. It is, it is, it is definitely a, a shortcoming. And... If you look at Sicario and Hell or High Water, I think it's narratively it's it's the weaker of the three, but I do like all the background detail. Esther, age 22, in London. Mark, 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 Mark. Oh, what? Why, oh, why did you encourage me to watch Wind River? Halfway through watching it, my sister turned to me and said, is it freezing in here or is it just the snow? <laughs> now, I too was feeling chilly to the marrow of my bones, but less to do with the snowy visuals and more to do with the relentlessly sombre atmosphere of the film. I would go so far as to say I left with frostbite of the soul. OK, but that... that... I've heard it said that the desolate portrayal of this story was perhaps daring and effective, but as an audience member, I felt stretched to my limits without moments of relief. OK, I mean, I think it, you could take that comment as a compliment that you felt... What was the phrase? Ch- chilled to the... Chilled... Uh, frostbite of the soul. Frostbite of the soul. If you put that on a poster, it would actually because that's what the film is meant to be. It's meant to have that that chilly thing that gets inside. I don't love the film. I have reservations about it, um, 
And uh, but I do think it's it's a sort of sincere piece of work that's a temp. And I, incidentally, I don't think Elizabeth Olsen is wasted. I think her character does have depth. Just because a character doesn't talk about their backstory or you know or give you great, great explanation about where they've come from, it's you know it's don't tell show. I think that Elizabeth Olsen tells you exactly what you need to know about her character and her characters. I hate to use the word journey through the film, that when she arrives, she's, she's an outsider. And by the end of it, because, of course, it, she's the one who's, who, who, during the course of the movie, actually changes the most. Uh, Tarak Hussein says, uh, oh, yeah, he just wants you to know, Mark, he's the winner of the sack race three years in, the row, in a row at Conway Primary School in Birmingham. That's his, basically his credential. For I'm impressed. Like just come back from a late-night screening of Wind River at my local, the famed Odeon Holloway, uh, which I was delighted to hear name-checked last week in relation to trouser-wearing etiquette. <laughs> I mean, seriously, keep them on. Keep them on. There is no excuse. Typical damp night in Upper Holloway, trousers definitely required, and once the film started, instead of taking anything off, it made me wish I'd brought a hat, scarf, heavy (laughs) woolen coat and pair of gloves. You see, this is a positive response to the film. It made you feel chilly and cold. Enjoyed the film for what it is, which is a revenge thriller with excellent performances from the cast, particularly Elizabeth Olsen as the fish-out-of-water FBI agent. The film showed well how an environment starved of resources becomes decayed and hopeless and the effect it has on the Native American population, whose only hope is to try and escape from it. However, felt it could have explored this further, as well as engaging more with the Native American members of the cast, and the message at the end felt a bit tacked on. Overall good, but could have been great. Yes, I I would agree with that. Every single word. Most of it, yeah. Uh, Hitman's uh, Bodyguard is at number five. It, it, it's it's a one note film, and that one note becomes quite tiring quite early on. The Emoji Movie is at number. I four. still haven't, and you know, somebody sent me a thing which said, "Here's the problem with you saying you're not going to see the Emoji Movie because you were off that week." Robbie Collins said to me, "You you definitely were off that week because of that film, weren't you?" They said, "When you do your best and worst of the year at the end of the year, if you haven't seen the Emoji Movie, your worst of the year list is going to be without value." And unfortunately, they're right. There's a logic so, there. Yeah, so I am going to have to see it. Um, and now I just feel even more depressed. Why don't you choose someone particularly sparkly to go and see it with you? Will you come? Number three is Dunkirk. Yes, OK, well, why not? Yeah? Well, shall we go see it together? Do you think our diaries will overlap? I, c- I figure I can work out okay. the time that you and I could both see the Emoji movie. All right, let's do that. Okay, we'll... but you, okay. so the, the nation has heard you now, okay? We will actually try and make this happen. Okay. We are going to see the Emoji movie together. I mean, I haven't seen Detroit. But it'll be funnier if you or see the women, Emoji movie. Do you think? Yeah. You can see the other ones on your own. Fine. Anyway, Dunkirk. Yeah, we know what we think of Dunkirk. Yeah, America made it too. Well, I, you know, what? I, you're just going to leave silence there. No, no, no. It's just I'm just I'm very aware of the fact that we're moving towards it, and I'm worried about running out of time because well, there is so much. So American made it fine for, for flimsy. Uh, you know, did the thing reminded me of other movies. Refer to previous programs for my full full full. It's number one. So, and you said, were you surprised? You said to me, were you surprised that it was number one? And I said, no, I wasn't surprised at all. I, I told you that it was number one. Now, credit where credit's due. Before I saw it, um. I had spoken to Alan Jones, who we said before, you know, a central figure in Fright Fest. And Alan had seen it and said, I guarantee you this thing is going to be huge, and I, which I was slightly surprised by. And then I saw the film and I liked it very much. I thought that it was it had, you know, it had that kind of adventurous feeling to it. That it was definitely influenced by the Goonies. It was definitely influenced by Poltergeist. Um, but the thing that made it work 
was that you could feel the director's affection for um uh, for, for for the young characters so it sort of felt like it had that stand by me you know teenage almost coming of age feel about it and in the background was the whole specter of pennywise and the kind of you know the it of the title but i i didn't quite have the idea that it was going to hit home as hard as it was and then alan said believe and alan's judgment on these things is usually pretty right and boy was he right because i think it's the biggest horror opening of any category any sort of uh, age rating category um evs and uh, yeah, and I, you know, I know loads of people have been to see it. Teenagers that have been to see it, many of whom hadn't ever seen the TV miniseries. People of my age have been to see it because they read the book and because they remember the TV miniseries. And almost across the board, they've all enjoyed it. Some feel, and I understand, it's not scary enough to be a full-on horror movie, but it's not. It's a horror adventure. That's why say you have to you have to keep the Goonies in mind. There are definitely that's a phrase I never thought I'd say out loud. Um, there are definitely scary moments in it, but they are secondary to the sort of, as I said, to the sort of stand by me coming coming of age adventure, which is going on all the way through the film. Uh, Sarah Fell says, whilst in LA this week, I had a free afternoon, so uh, as in the heartland, went to the movies. The only thing on at the time was it. Thought, well, this will be silly, maybe a bit rubbish, but it'll stay. <laughs> maybe a bit rubbish. A bit rubbish, but it'll stay off the jet lag. How wrong I was. It was blooming terrifying. A oh, okay, fine, great, good, a good, good. Version of the Goonies, bike ride through idyllic town and all. Although there was uh, a lot going into thing, thing, thing. Can't do that and can't do that. <laughs> Especially Sophia Lillis. Yes, who's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. It's not a sophisticated adult horror like Get Out, but it is pure horror nostalgia in the best way. I got memories of the first time I watched Nightmare on Elm Street and Carrie and Halloween, so bravo to the guys who made this. It's a long time since I really enjoyed a horror in the old way, and it made me feel young, young again, jet lag and all. I think Andy Muschietti has done a brilliant job of directing it. I think, you know, as I said, you can really feel the affection for the characters. And it's that classic thing. And Stephen King's always said the same thing. If you don't care about the characters, you don't care about the story. And that's, that's the key. I think he's really got under their skin. Daniel Tuck in Gloucester. Last night I went to a showing of uh, It at the late, late hour of ten past six in the afternoon. <laughs> Very good. I usually try to go to the cinema in the morning and this showing was a good reminder of exactly why. The most code uncompliant audience I have ever encountered okay. uh, with one entire row in particular holding conversations for the entirety oh, maybe, yeah. of the film see that would have driven me mad and making highly exaggerated expressions of what I can only assume was supposed to be fear every single time there was even the merest hint of Pennywise's orange hair nevertheless I thoroughly enjoyed the film it wasn't especially scary Though the new take on Pennywise definitely had its moments and the majority of the apparent scares were telegraphed a mile off. But mm. it wasn't the horror aspect of the film that made it for me. It was the Losers Club. Yes. Which, exactly. is, the, which is the group. The, which of, are the kids, yeah. yeah. Who, as I keep saying, Andy Buscetti absolutely loves clearly. Great characters portrayed through some excellent performances from the young cast. Particular mention has to go to Stranger Things' Finn Wolfhard, yeah. who absolutely stole the show with his your mama jokes throughout. The other kids were also great and you couldn't help but feel for them, even if some of the backs has felt a little heavy-handed, uh, though that's more down to the source material. Uh, Daniel, thank you very much. And we've just got time for one more. Uh, Ash in Manchester. Just got back from a screening of it at my local cinema. 
uh, which scared the youths in attendance and left me thinking that it's been far too long since I watched Tim Burton's Batman. <laughs> While the film is successful on a technical level That's That's and good. the costume department deserves heaps of credit, I found myself bored after an hour and trying to anticipate really? what songs would come up in the soundtrack. Sadly, a montage scene backed by Jason Donovan must have been left at the cutting room floor. It felt like a study in how meta you can make a film's universe. I'm half surprised that a poster for Pet Cemetery or Misery didn't show up. Setting it in the 1980s and hiring Stranger Things' Finn Wolfhard to play the same character is on that show where kids get scared of stuff in the past did the film no favours. If you're under 21 and new to this horror thing, you'll probably enjoy it, but anyone else should watch Jack Nicholson's Joker to see a real masterclass in clown acting. Okay, I think that's very harsh. Uh, The reference to, you know, remembering uh, seeing Batman is because there's there's a cinema in the in the in the film and it's showing Batman and Lethal Weapon 2 and Nightmare on Elm Street 5 but those you know those are sort of things that are in the background they're not they're not overly flagged up the posters on the bedroom walls are Gremlins and Beetlejuice as far as I can remember um, this is like an episode of Clapperboard it is I'm very very sorry yes exactly um, he came in from the left and he was wearing a brown shirt with and but the, but the, the thing about it is I don't agree that it was just I mean the Stranger Things comparison is obviously they're not least because of the, the, the casting crossover but I think that it has it's captured the spirit of the film ahead of the time right I mean obviously it's moved it from the 50s to the 80s because in the novel it's the 50s because that's you know that that's King's youth and I mean I really enjoyed it I, I as I said that's I I know some people don't think it's scary enough and I I agree it could be more scary but I didn't watch it as a horror film so much as a horror adventure which is a different thing incidentally uh, Stephen King did this thing for there's a Stephen King season at the BFI, the British Film Institute, and they asked him to name his favourite films. Okay, and he named you know Night of the Demon and those sort of things. But guess what Stephen King's favourite film is of all time? And you'll never guess this. Yes, I will guess. Go on. It's a William Friedkin film. Yes. You fill in the blank. It's Sorcerer. It's not The Exorcist. His favorite is Sorcerer, the remake of The Wages of Fear, which is a really smart choice. I just want to acknowledge again uh, all students and their parents who are driving to their further education place uh, of choice uh, now uh, or over the weekend because I was just thinking, like John Wilders, who we mentioned earlier with his dad James, there they are having a chat. And I suspect during the news, people like John might have said, Dad, what's Clapperboard? What's that reference to clap? What was, what was he talking about? And then James would have said, would have all kind of either right looked all important and he'd have adjusted himself in the uh, in the driver's seat. Well, let, well me, let me tell you about clapperboards then. Back in the day, because it was like a uh, TV film show. Great program, yeah. And, then, and there was a bit when they would show you a clip of a film, and then they would ask Which you'd never heard of. You never heard of, and then they would ask you questions like, when the gentleman came in holding the pipe, what else was he holding? And you'd say, oh, yeah. yeah, ah, you know. And it was, all t- it was, it was almost like you know, how well you, you, could, you had observed. And screen tests. Screen tests. With Michael Rod. That was a great thing as well, That's wasn't it? One. Exactly the same show as I remember <laughs> in my head anyway. Anyway, so just, uh, just acknowledging that uh, father-son, mother-daughter, mother-son, father, that kind of reference point as we march on through life itself. Thank you, Father Simon. That's okay. Fine. So, uh, all the movie reviews uh, on the way. Tell us what you're looking forward to talking about particularly. I'm particularly looking forward to Mother and uh, uh, the Villainess, uh, but I'm particularly looking forward now to hearing you speaking to uh, Dame Judi Dench and as Queen Victoria, Lord Eddie Izzard. Uh, Eddie Izzard, who in this clip uh, you're going to hear uh, Dame Judi as Queen Vic, uh, Eddie as Dirty Bertie, the Prince of Wales, <laughs> and From number thirty. And Tim Pigott-Smith as the Queen's private secretary, Sir Henry Ponsonby. 
We have proof beyond any doubt that Abdul Karim is a, a low-born imposter, Your Majesty. The Munchie never even went to school, Mother. The man's a complete fraud. And here he is overlooking the boxes. Abdul and his father are completely common. You despicable toads. Racialists. Spying dossier. Picking on a poor defenseless Indian. Of course he doesn't have qualifications. They do things completely differently out there. But don't you see, Mama? He's using his position for his own gain. And how does that make him any different from any of you? That's a clip from uh, Victoria and Abdul. I'm delighted to say that two of its stars, Dame Judi Dench and Eddie Izzard, are with us. And I might start with Eddie because Dame Judi might still be finishing her mints. <laughs> Have you finished your mints, Dame Judi? You, you're finished I just, just about got rid of it. Shall I start with Eddie? Please. Okay, we'll start with Eddie. Hi, Eddie, how are you? I'm very good. We can both talk at once, you know. Yes, but, yes. But you don't have a mouthful of mints. No, no I don't no, have now. No, we're both, we're ready and waiting. We're you, We're expecting, because we can see your book. I'm ready, you can't see this, but there's a, lots of good questions I can feel. Now, the questions you're looking at are the questions for Darren Aronofsky. Ah, well. And if I asked, if I asked ask him... Ask us your, Darren's questions. Would you like Darren Aronofsky's questions? Yes. <laughs> Why did you write the film that you're not in? <laughs> okay. Um, this isn't going to work, is no, it? No, I can't ask you about Jennifer Lawrence, can I? No, it's not going to quite Okay. The right we'll, we'll stick with Victoria uh, and Abdul. Dame Judy, very nice to, to see you again. Maybe we shouldn't... Between you, tell us the story of Victoria and Abdul and where you fit in with the story. I'll start if you wish. Um, I think... Start. Well, actually, I, I can place this in a big okay. context, which is I think this is it's a story of love across a great divide, across the, the greatest divide, maybe in this world of negative hatred that's coming up, 1930s politics that's being tried out. Everyone's saying, hey, let's go back to the 1930s. This is a story of, of love platonic love but it's almost like a Romeo and Juliet without the sex and the climbing up of trees and stuff um, but between Victoria and Abdul and it was real wasn't it it was the real thing and we haven't known about it because after Abdul uh, after Queen Victoria died she, he was got rid of and everything to do with it was all destroyed by me thanks to, by thanks to Eddie yes, by thanks to Bertie that's right I Prince should of say Wales. of course that Dame Judy plays Queen Victoria and Eddie plays a dirty Bertie, the Prince of Wales. Dirty Bertie, which isn't actually really alluded to at all, because the, that is the thing. If you just do Monte look, Carlo, isn't it? Yeah, I, I've just come from Monte Carlo, so therefore there's sex. We were just looking. <laughs> he had a chair made to have sex in. I should point this in context. I would say you, Mum, Vicky, and Albert uh, were not a great mum and dad to Bertie. They he saw them for 15 minutes in the morning and evening. Or any of them was were they? No, they I mean they were all the kids were all sort of all over the place because it was like headmaster and headmistress that was the relationship really and so he was already off the rails by the time he was 20 and mum victoria blamed bertie for the death of albert who came to read the read the riot act to bertie uh, after one famous dalliance with some woman and everyone was talking about it and albert said you can't do this went for a big four-hour walk with him and he died two weeks later of some disease that was caught yeah. from that time i, I realized that uh, after watching your film, that my memory of the relationship between Queen, Queen, Queen Victoria and the Prince of Wales still comes from the TV series where Timothy West played the Prince of Wales and Annette Crosby was Queen Victoria. And about in that series, which was wonderful, I don't actually remember a love chair or uh, for, no. for the Prince of Wales. I think they might have skipped over that. We, we, we didn't do the love chair either, but, um, but this, is, this is really Victoria and Abdul Karim's story. And, and she was 
a depressed woman eating herself to death. Well, she was, you know, in her 80s, wasn't she? And everybody else, all her friends keep falling off the bow. And she found herself uh, rather with no stimulus at all, no excitement in her life, just being told what she was going to do every day and having to do it. And, you know, like the royal family, having to do everything, having a schedule marked out for you every single day. And where's the day off? Where are the laughs? Yeah, um, and so the year is eighteen eighty seven, and it's the golden jubilee. And right at the beginning of the of the film, as Eddie suggests, we see you at a banquet, and you are uh, eating pieces, incredibly yes, but you're eating incredibly fast. You clearly love all the food, and you are a dejected woman. Well, after Albert died, of course, she just went on eating, and she had nothing really to live for. Then she had like four years, I think, with John Brown, and then started to go rapidly downhill again. Can I interrupt there? Can yes. I say, when you were shooting that, you were eating that food, weren't you? That was. I'm afraid you, I, I was. It was the one, though, that you came in very crossly into the room. I crossed When the I was room? eating boiled no, egg. I was just and it visiting. was at the end of that day that they said, do you know you've eaten 18 boiled eggs? Too? Yeah. You were, go, you were just... Because ch- I thought there was a... Te- some actors, particularly actresses, have a technical thing of if there's food coming, then I will talk a lot and not actually eat any food. And I was actually kind of amazed. And, I, and, and it's a beautiful thing about your technique, uh, Judy, which is uh, you just... You just go for it. You live it. You be it. You're there. I had no lines, Eddie. Yeah, you were no. doing all the chat. I had to. No, deal I was just chatting around, around the corner. But you were you were going through profiteroles <laughs> and soups and stuff, and it's it's really funny. and a great big leg of something. What was that? I don't know that probably duck my leg. or, was my or leg. grouse or some. <laughs> but you bird. woofed it all down, and then because of course you're doing multiple takes of this. This is not one take. This is like five takes of each. I was very easy not to feed on the shoot. <laughs> They didn't, didn't have to feed me at all. Even though Queen Victoria is actually eating herself very large, isn't she? She is. Yeah. She, um, was she as tall as she was wide? That was the rumour, wasn't She was wasn't 46, it? wasn't she? 46 she, inches round the she middle. Almost and she wasn't shape. five foot tall. When you saw the script, did you think, I would love to play Queen, Queen Victoria again? I would love to do that. I can see why what I can contribute. Or did you think... Why would I want to do this again? No, I didn't think. Why did I want to? And I can't. I can't. I can't imp- impress how much that I adored playing Mrs. Brown with John Madden. I adored it. I never thought I would visit her again. But then I didn't know about this added story, as I think mo- most of us didn't know. And so the the fascination of this and having played that part and kind of done the homework about her, uh, I thought it was a a continuance, and I thought interesting to tell. In a way, it's it, it's it's similar. It certainly has echoes of the John Brown story. Is it is Eddie right that this is a like a Romeo and Juliet without the sex? I mean, it's a it's a it is a platonic relationship. What is the attraction between the two? Well, I think the attraction is the fact that she uh, that her life, you know, she she had nothing to really live for, and I think she was a passionate person which perhaps we don't think about when we look and see her statue and the indomitability about her and the Empress of India. You know, there was a tremendous need of for somebody to stimulate her mind, to learn from, to teach, to everything. And, and looking at Ali, why ever not? This is Ali Fazal who plays uh, Abdul Karim. Who we played, should say that yes. Ali Fazal. 
Is it uh, Fuzzle? It's Thank first you. syllable. Fuzzle, actually, which, he said. Fuzzle. Well, it's a, it's a short A. It's a short A. Yes, we went through the whole film calling him Fuzzle, which sounds really good in the English uh, kind of diction or mouth, but it, it's actually actually Fuzzle. Um, so yeah. you you blurred that slightly. Yes, because I was going around telling everyone, do realise this. We're going to promote this. So how am I saying it? You're saying Ali Fazal's second syllable emphasis, and it's a first syllable emphasis. And how were you saying it? Didn't we you? were saying Ali Fazal. It's Ali Fazal. Yeah. Fuzzle. That's not oh, what you're saying. Fuzzle. Well, it's yes. they're, they're both A's, but they're short A's. But we you should spend that. Much nicer. You say it in a much nicer Ali Fuzzle. way. Ali Fazal. Fuzzle. I think we should get Ali in here. Is he? Is he in the he'd hotel? Say, he'd come in and say it a lot. But it's a but name we're not going to forget. The fact that he just talks to Victoria as a human being, I think that is a key thing. Which I assume, because uh, we obviously went there and doing documentary, but you know that's what the real Al- Abdul Karim. Did was just talk to her as a human being, as John Brown did as well. That's what she was desperate and for. And as, alas, she didn't do with any of the children. Mm. She didn't have that relaxed kind of feeling, relaxed relationship with the children. But she was able to speak very easily to them. Is it true Stephen Frears came to watch you do a, a gig? Yeah, Eddie? I didn't know this. You but didn't know he was there? No. Um, uh, Leo Davis, um, brilliant casting director, and because and, she she threw me my name into the mix there was another actor up to the bbc and they were saying this person and apparently she said no this person and they went ooh apparently because i thought they go ooh but they were, apparently they went ooh and then stephen comes along and watches the show and i would advise no director to come and see my stand up before casting me in anything because have you seen the film Yes, of course I've seen the but, film. But, you know, the distance between what I'm doing as Bertie and what I do as a stand-up, it's, it's a long way apart, isn't it's, it? It's quite substantial, and the political views of Bertie are n- not really the ones that are associated with yourself. I know, but the distance of the... I just think you've got to be kind of brilliant. I think Stephen's kind of brilliant to say, yes, I can see that, and he can probably go and do that. You know, they're just a long way away. But I do think he wanted the, the confidence that I want, because I am the one character in the film that could tell mum... The relationship between... Um, Abdul Karim and Queen Victoria, uh, and the way Ali Fuzzle uh, plays it, uh, made more sense to. And when I, I was reading that, uh, Ali was told to refer. He was told to go and watch Peter Sellers in being there, and I thought, oh, okay, I can I can see that with that wide eyed amazement about life and beauty, and yet saying simple things which are perceived as very wise. Do you think there's some truth in that, both of you? Probably. I think he's a kind of natural, Ali. I think he's just a completely natural, instinctive actor. And the wonderful thing is we met the day before we started shooting. We had a lunch together. And the moment he walked in, there was absolutely no hesitation or awkwardness. It was just so easy to talk to him and to relate to him. Which, which he brings to the relationship between the two of you. Definitely. There's an interesting scene between the three of us, which is in the, the when we're going to Florence. I have this one wonderful, funny line, which no one actually quite sees as funny as I do, which is, you can't take a Muslim to Florence, which doesn't make any sense. It's just a bonkers line that he's got into his head. But in that, we're in the train tr- trucks, and there's a whole love scene, really, between uh, Victoria, between Judy and, as Victoria and Ali, saying, just keep me safe. And just before that, I'm in her her bathroom that's right just yeah. totally Presenting every minute of my yes bathroom being totally talking scary. over her just just i realized if i just ram <laughs> this scene down and what is this he's got a bathroom i don't want it to be who is this guy oh god and i'm just some child it's a petulant child saying 
that this is just stupid. Do I have to come with you to do this? And it was a fun scene to play. And then it's a beautiful love scene that happens afterwards, which you did the, the first take. I watched it. I watched when she says, just keep me safe. And I watched the first take and I thought, hey, first take, you've got it first take. And Stephen said, that's why she's played the big bucks. And I just, I was pleased because I thought, I mean, he thinks it's the first take. You do one safety take after that and Judy nailed it in one. It was a, it was a beautiful thing. What, what was it like watching Dame Judy Dench and being alongside Dame Judy Dench? Well, seeing as I've known her before, because you've come to my comedy I books. am his greatest fan. He'll tell you otherwise. I am his greatest fan. And um, Michael, my husband, when he was alive, and Finty, my daughter, and I have been to all Eddie's shows, all. So everything he says in all those shows is a kind of password in our family. And has been so. Since so you can do all the Star Trek routines. And well, we know it, all that. We it, know all it, that. It's, this, I, I suddenly realised she was coming to opening nights, and I met her, and so I knew her from that, and that was great. She has a wonderful sense of humour. But then suddenly we're playing um, mother and son, and we're a complete loggerheads. So it, it was because we get on; it's great, and we are fighting each other completely robustly. Um, so. It, it was a wonderful thing for me to do. But um, there's an interesting thing that I thought Judy is in touch with a teenage girl inside her. She still has that. And that's when she's dancing with Ellie, when you, after we do the um, Poor Little Butterfly and you dance there, it is a teenage girl with her lover. And that's, she thinks, she thinks. But that's, but that's what you show, that's what you've got burning, in, that's what you've still got inside you. you. She's a very young, you know, Judy is a very young person and she can bring that, even though you've lived a life, you can bring that youth to any role you play. So that's, I think, really just works for... Uh, just an observation here, uh, listeners have sent in loads of questions, I'm not quite sure how, many, how much time we'll have for these, but Paul Souter has pointed out on this question that three of... Judy's most standout films, many standout films, you've been playing alongside comedians. Billy Connolly, Steve Coogan, now Eddie Izzard, with wonderful results. Lucky is, me. Is there, a, is there a sparkle that comes onto a set and when you're working a script, when you're working alongside someone like Eddie and absolutely. Billy Connolly, Steve There's Coogan? There's absolutely no question. No question at all. Um, there's such a kind of liveliness, and especially if you know the person, like we knew Billy. We went to Billy's shows before we met Billy. And I'd known Steve a little bit, but not, you know. And it's just wonderful, it, you know, it's wonderful just meeting and and trying to sort it all out between you yes. and yet having an, such an admiration for the person. What do we see you in next, Dame Judy? Do you know? Murder on the Orient Express. And you are playing, uh, you're back playing... Dragomir, uh, Dragomirov, Princess Dragomirov. More royalty. I have a lot, wonderful, well, sort of royalty. <laughs> she sits about a lot and wears lovely clothes, a lot of jewellery, and has not only um, two dogs to deal with, but also Olivia Coleman. And profiteroles? And no profiteroles oh. in sight. Eddie, what do, uh, what do we see you in next? I'm playing William Twanky in uh, Death on a Tree by Arthur Negus. Um, Arthur Negus. Now, there's there's a name there's which a name we need explaining later. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one of his, uh, one, the only play he wrote, and I am learning to juggle cats uh, in a circus on uh, on Mars. Uh, apart from that, nothing. It's all downhill from here. We're out of time. Dame Judy, Eddie Izzard, thank you very much indeed for uh, for joining us today. Thank, thank you, you very much. Uh, which was a delightful conversation. <laughs> but the Arthur Negus thing, we, 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 we were talking about Arthur Negus completely coincidentally. No, it wasn't, it wasn't coincidence because 
when I came out of the interview, I was thinking, okay, well, we're going to have to explain Arthur Negus because oh, I see. Okay, he won't fine. he won't have been discussed on radio for a very very long time. I'm sorry, I was under the impression that that was a, that was a thing. No. Okay, and fine. Arthur Negus was. I mean, I don't really remember him particularly, except that Eddie just plucked his name from somewhere. Uh, <laughs> that is what Arthur Negus does. What's that Eddie Isard does? There was an old. It was like an antiques show called Going for a Song. Right. And Arthur Negus was the old timer. Yeah. Who would say that's worth three and six? <laughs> so, something like okay. that. So uh, yeah, so th- so that's that's the reference. So it's a couple of minutes away from three o'clock. Victorian Abdul is the movie. How much? So you're going to need lots of time to talk. Well, not lots of them. I mean, I can start, then you can interrupt me. Okay. Why don't you do? Why don't you give us like a pre-title sequence? I'll start. Okay. For your review. Yeah, basically, then... I will start. You can stop me, and then we'll I'll pick up again after the news. Okay. okay. Yeah. Okay. Fine. If you give us a quite easy edit point. For... I'll try. Okay. So, um, I mean, essentially, it's it's a very likable film, and uh, it's a film which I mean, I, I didn't know this story beforehand. Did you? Were you aware of this before? Of the story before? Do you know I was? And okay. that's because this is very bizarrely. But since you asked, my brother made okay. a TV documentary called Victoria and Abdul about two thousand and two. Okay, based on the same, based book, on exactly so, the same story, and on the, presumably on the same book that this is. I, that takes it in. Am I my brother's keeper? Okay, I don't know. Okay, very biblical sign. He ain't heavy. Fine, thank you. But there, and there is that sort of strange thing that after, you know, because Mrs. Brown, or as they call it in America, Her, Her Majesty Mrs. Brown, they literally oh. change the title of Mrs. Brown, they change it to Her Majesty Mrs. Case. Brown. So there's that, and then you have this kind of, because there is a mirror, there is a mirror there, which is, you know, it's a few years later, and as, as Dame Judy was saying in that interview, that she has this, this great closeness with John Brown, and then, you know, things start to fall apart, she's in a state in which she's eating very heavily, she feels that there is nothing, you know, stimulating her, because obviously she's character craves friendship and as with um as with uh, her majesty mrs brown the sort of central subject is loneliness and then looking for something then long oh fine i'm stopping now I'm like, no 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 okay, no, okay 30 seconds and then along comes this other character who in many ways mirrors that relationship that we have already seen and has already been taken to heart so much by cinema audiences because bear in mind her majesty mrs brown mrs brown started off as a tv movie that then was deemed as something that would be likable enough to actually then be expanded into a full into a sort of proper feature length so this is later on, which she's again, she's isolated, she's lonely, and she finds this friendship, um, which is at the centre of uh, Victorian Abdul, which is odd because it's it, this isn't the story that I knew before, but you had said that you did because, strangely enough, your brother had made a documentary about it. So, um, I mean, the first thing to say is it is very likable. It's likable not least because it's got uh, performances that it's very easy to engage with. I mean, Judy Dench has, you know, clearly played this character before and loves this and loved this character before. You mentioned the early scenes in which she's at these. Uh, these sort of state dinners in which the, the joke is that she eats really fast and nobody else can start eating until she's started and they have to stop as soon as she's up. And there's a lot of silent comedy in that, which I like. And she made the joke when she was talking to Eddie about the fact that she, she hasn't got any lines in those things. Her, her performance is to eat really fast and she does that very well. And then I think you have very, you've got very likeable performances between her and uh, Ali Fazzle, as we've been... Well, I mean, it's... Yes, except that they were clearly disagreeing because Dame Judy was saying fuzzle. But anyway, whatever okay. you want to say. Well, but it's a, there's there's real chemistry between those two characters. I mean, the same way that there was between her character and uh, the character played by Billy Connolly, John Brown, in Mrs Brown. You have that same... It's a sort of, you know, strangely kind of chalk and cheese relationship you brought up in that interview that apparently Stephen Frears had said to consider the demeanour 
of Peter Sellers' character in being there, which which is kind of difficult because that's the kind of thing that can tip over into awkward caricature, I think. But I think he doesn't do that at all. I think what he does is I can you can once you'd said that because you said that before I saw the film and I could see moments. I can say okay, I can see how that kind of that beatific thing is going on. But also, what's interesting is that the film alludes very clearly to the fact that the, the character of Abdul may not be uh, exactly what you think. In fact, one of the things that I would have liked more is a little bit more unpicking of when we start to discover, you know, actually that his background isn't entirely how the, the way he may have presented it. And there's a moment in which it looks like everything's going to fall apart, but then that sort of that moves on a little bit because it looks like the film doesn't want to dig too deep into that because actually what it's centrally concerned with uh, is the friendship. And from the outside, it looks like the kind of film that would appeal to, you know, what's now referred to as the, the Grey Pound audience, the, the audience that flocked to see Best Exotic Marigold Hotel and turn that into a major hit. But obviously beneath that there is this fascinating and very relevant story about this unusual situation in which you have somebody who is... And there's a point when Eddie Izzard says, you're the head of the Church of England. And uh, all the way through the beginning of the film... Um, Queen Victoria's character is, ref- is, you know, mistakenly referring to everybody as Hindus, and then there's this conversation which says, "No, I'm I'm Muslim." And then she becomes very, very fascinated by the language, by the religion. She starts to learn Urdu, and uh, and the film is then about that kind of close and respectful friendship between these, you know, between these two cultures that actually. I think is is portrayed in a way which, which which has more depth than perhaps the surface of the film would suggest. There's a thing at the beginning. Correct me if I'm wrong. In which it says, based on a true story, full stop. Mostly, yeah, based on and true events. Mostly, mostly, which I found slightly distracting because I thought they were trying to have their cake and eat it. Although what's interesting is that many of the things that you think when you see the film must simply be dramatic constructs aren't i mean the really odd thing is that the the the, the things w- the things which aren't factually accurate aren't the things that you'd think weren't factually accurate because the film has a sort of strange air of artifice about it even when what it's dealing with is uh you know is real subjects um Eddie Izzard is enjoying the heck out of himself, isn't he? As doing Bertie, I mean, he's, you know, there are, there are scenes in which he's when he's not speaking, when he's reacting with sort of pompous outrage, and it's it's sort of full on. But it's funny because when you said, "What are you doing next?" and the joke was, he said, "I'm doing Widow Twanky in a production in a tree." Martha Negus, and it, <laughs> yeah. and he put he put on twenty six pounds to do to be the Prince of Wales. Yeah. And when I did the interview wow. uh, with him last week, he's as trim yes. and looking every inch the marathon runner. It's incredible. So you yeah. would think, and if yeah. it had longer, well, I'd have, I wanted to, to talk about it, because if you're a marathon runner and you have to put on that amount of weight, it must... No, that's extraordinary. Yeah, that is horrible. extraordinary. I would just wear the padding, you know. I wouldn't, yeah. <laughs> although I wouldn't need to, obviously. I have to say the standout performance for me was Adil Akhtar, who is so brilliant in The Big Sick. And here is plays the sort of it's it's almost like a sidekick role, but in fact, in many ways, is the crucial role. It's the character Muhammad who 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 comes with Abdul and doesn't really want to be there. Suddenly, f- finds himself stuck in this position that he had nothing to do with. Is reduced to a level of somebody who is is subservient and is put in sort of as, as far as the film's concerned, fairly squalid quarters and hates being where he is. What he wants to do is is to go home. And although it is you know it's a supporting performance, what he manages to do is to inject into it firstly humor there's a lot of comedy there's a lot of you know there's a lot of uh again what i refer to as silent comedy sort of reaction comedy there's real pathos because you do genuinely get a sense of sadness and there is also subdued anger that in there is a moment in the film which you referred to as 
the author's moment and what I would refer to as the kind of, you know, the Jiminy Cricket conscience. Yeah, it's moment. a little I think this is what Stephen Frizz wants us to take away from the conversation. And and I think he plays that brilliantly. And he is a really, really charismatic performer. And I think although it's a small role, for me, he he was the person that, that had the most impact in the film. So I think the film is it's likable. It's got a, it's strange because it's got a slightly fluffy air about it. And because we'd been told at the beginning, based on true events, mostly you're inclined whilst watching it to think, well, that absolutely must be a construct. But I'm, now I'm going to go and watch your brother's documentary because it was interesting to find out that, that a couple of the things that I imagined must absolutely have been invented weren't. Uh, and I wonder if Victoria... Because in, in the movie, Victoria has, uh, as we heard in the clip, a whole bunch of progressive views. Yes. And, and there, she's surrounded is... by this uh, coterie of fools. It was worth mentioning Tim Pickett-Smith, who we, met, we also heard in the clip, this is his final uh, performances. For yes, his, absolutely. It's, 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 yeah, yeah and, 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 and he's fantastic. And I wonder if it was quite as clear-cut. No, I mean, that, that absolutely does feel like a construct, doesn't it? That absolutely feels like a dramatic construct that is therefore mirroring what we know about, uh, you know, what, what, what we know from uh, Mrs Brown, which I keep having to stop myself calling Her Majesty Mrs Brown because that Miramax trailer went round so often with that title. Uh, so Victoria and Abdul uh, is out this week. What else is what else is that? And I know exactly how you're going to say this. Mother! Let's say it, because it's not intended to be uh, spoken in a Yorkshire accent, I don't think. No, although it's partly, isn't it, because it's... Um, there's that scene in... Uh, that thing. In Polanski's Macbeth with Keith Chegwin, which it reminds me of. Anyway, OK, Mother, when you did the interview with Darren Aronofsky and you brought up straight away small m, lowercase m, and exclamation point at the end, of course, when the exclamation mark, what am I saying, exclamation point, what am I, American? Um, what am I, a teenager? I'm sorry. I mean, I'm on. Sorry. And uh, when the title comes up on screen, it literally goes Mother and then ping as the exclamation mark comes up, which is, which is a laugh. It's a joke. It's the only laugh. No, now this is the point. You, ha I think, one of the things about the film is one has to get the register of it, which is kind of. I mean, I would say that it is a grotesque black comedy allegory parable that starts out. Hang on, like was it grotesque. grotesque uh, al what did I say? A allegory? grotesque black, very jet black, ghastly comedy, which is an allegory and a parable. Wow, that's a lot there. Yeah, I know. Remember. It's all those things. So basically, um, it's a story which is, you know, allegorical and archetypal and drifts from weird black humour. And I said, I think it's important that at the beginning you get that thing which is bing, which is a sort of, you know, joke line, and it then moves through various... It's a hell and you should say it's a typewriter bing. That's yes, well, although, yes, it, that's what it seems to be. But it's also, it's just the fact that it's an exclamation mark. So the story is... Um, that Jennifer Lawrence is the young wife of uh, Javier Bardem's apparently writer's-blocked poet. They are in a house uh, which is in the middle of nowhere, it's remote, and she is very significantly trying to turn the house into a paradise for them. She, uh, she uh, has apparently has nesting instinct, but at the moment it is just the two of them, and they are slightly estranged because he doesn't appear to be able to write, he just spends a lot of time wandering around and complaining. He is a, a lot older than she is, and he's also a lot, a lot, more, a lot less gracious than she is. She is trying to turn this, uh, this home into the, you know, the idyllic setting for them, and Eden-like setting, very, very crucially. Then there's a knock at the door, and it's a character played by Ed Harris, Man, um, who says that he th thought that... Man, that's how he's... That's how he's yes, he's called Man. I mean, he's Javier, obviously a man. Javier Bardem is him. Jennifer Lawrence is mother. 
Uh, Michelle Pfeiffer is woman. I mean, these so the characters are unnamed. They're sort of named with archetypes. Well, I said at the beginning, they're archetypal characters. And he turns up and he says, I'm sorry, I thought this was a and b You go, really? <laughs> Firstly, we're in the middle of nowhere. And secondly, have you seen the house? When was the last time you saw a and b Anyway, he says, I thought it was a and b And, you know, I'm sorry, I'm out. And I'm a bit lost. Do you mind if I stay? Javier Bardem invites him in, says, of course you can stay. Of course you can stay. Jennifer Lawrence's mother character is, well, we don't know who this guy is. Next thing we know, his wife turns up, played by Michelle Pfeiffer, in sort of glamorous yet garrulous form. And immediately what happens is a rift happens between the two central characters that she starts to feel that her home is being invaded, whereas he seems to find inspiration from these people who start turning up and apparently adore him. Here's a clip. Why don't you want kids? Excuse me? I saw how you reacted earlier. I know what it's like when you're just starting out and you think you have all the time in the world. And, you know, you're not going to be so young forever. Have kids. Then you'll be creating something together. This is all just... setting. So she's immediately sort of behaving inappropriately, saying things that she shouldn't say. She's intrusive. She starts worming her way into the confidence of Javier Bardem's character. And there seems to be a, a gap which is widening between the two central characters, mother and him. And over the course of the drama, more and more people start arriving. And the drama becomes more and more surreal, more and more paranoid, more and more nightmarish. It is absolutely, as Darren Aronofsky said in the interview that you did with him last week, it is a subjective, you know, it's a single point of view film. I mean, there's an awful lot of the film is simply looking at Jennifer Lawrence or looking over her shoulder or showing you her point of 60% view. 60% of the 60, film. Yeah, yeah. It's astonishingly so, and it's a two-hour film. And um, so it starts out, as I said, like Repulsion, that idea about paranoia or maybe, you know, the, the tenant or something. And, and there's an awful lot of Rosemary's Baby that it then starts to kind of slowly grow into. And it's very clear that what it's meant to be is a subjective, nightmarish, waking dream, you know, like a, you know, like Aronofsky was talking about dream states. And also that it's a parable, that it's an allegory. And the film then descends into these unbelievably dark areas, but does so in a way which is so incredibly sort of, you know, histrionic and intense and over the top that I think one has to read it as uh, all the way through as being, you know, as being ironic and detached and a construct, a conceit, a sort of dream fantasy. Um, the most important thing is, you know, what does it mean? Okay, so you can read it in a number of ways. You can read it as an exaggerated drama about marital breakdown. You can read it as um, a story about the way in which, you know, older men preying on younger women. You can, as has very much been read, as a story about the mistreatment of Mother Earth, that somehow the house is Mother Earth. These people come in and they don't understand how to respect Mother Earth and they start, you know, pulling out the fitments and suddenly they're all over it and the house is starting to suffer. You can also read it very clearly as a biblical power. I mean, it is a sort of new Genesis story. It's a new Genesis story which has got an Eden. It's got a, a, a creator figure in the case of Javier Bardem. It's got a Mary figure. It's got an absolute Cain and Abel uh, in the character of two brothers played by Donald and Brian Gleeson. Why are you looking at me like I'm telling you something that you don't know? No, no, I was just wondering what Mary's got to do with uh, Genesis, but anyway. No, no, but that's... Yeah, Mary hasn't, but, the, but, the, but, the, but that's... It's... OK, so... But the thing is, good point, thank you for picking me up on that, but you know what I mean. I do. What I'm saying is that it's... I mean, actually, the reason I'm like Genesis is because the last thing 
that Aronofsky did was Noah, which was basically taking, you know, a Genesis story and then turning it into a science fiction film with rock monsters battling each other. Yes. And and then, in fact, the, the story you can then carry on reading the New Testament section of it right the way through to the unbelievably sort of... Uh, you know, full on uh, ending, which I, which I think, which I think, which I think we sort of shouldn't. So, Aronofsky has talked about Bunuel and the Exterminating Angel. I mean, he mentioned Bunuel in that interview that he did with you. I mean, I think if you're a horror fan, you'll start out seeing David Lynch and seeing David Cronenberg, and you'll end up seeing Regera Deodato uh, and more. Whilst I was watching the film, I found it a really intense, disorientating, and often very, very. Uh, unpleasant even uh, experience it was like it was like that relentless that in your face that constant point of view like never backing off being really really sort of insistent and uh, and I found it uh, frustrating I found it sometimes ridiculous I found it very ve- you know very very and then as it moves into its sort of later sections in which chaos begins to reign and to manifest itself in in ways which are you know all the more sort of blackly absurd you know dark comedy and you know right into real sort of ghoulish graveside humor um I found I, I found the film very very oppressive and but what I then did was I I walked away from it and I had a very brief interaction with you in which mm-hmm. we sort of discussed our and what I found was the more I let it settle, the more it settled down, the more rewarding I found it. For a start, I started thinking about what it was actually about. I started admiring the way in which it had gripped me, grabbed me at the very, very beginning and sort of propelled me on this extremely linear journey in which I realised that one of the things I was experiencing was not, you know, not having space to breathe because it's not a film with breathing spaces. I realised how much I thought that uh, Matthew Lepatique's Le um, uh, cinematography with that constant that over the shoulder, in the face point of view all the way through was creating this sort of first person immersive experience that I was thoroughly uh, you know dragged into I started thinking about the ways in which you can read it and realizing how many different interpretations one could put upon it which is one of the reasons why when I started saying that genesis and saying creator and blah 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 and you suddenly throw because there is there is there is a madonna figure in there I understand that's sure, yeah. but all those things are mixed up together and I started thinking you know, find me another, in inverted commas, mainstream director who is pushing the boundaries of, you know, mainstream surrealism in such a way. I mean, this is kind of doing what Lynch was doing when Lynch was at his most out there in terms of cinema. Lynch is, of course, now, you know, doing it on television. If you've been watching any of the new Twin Peaks, it's similarly, you know, nobody sat down in a script meeting with David Lynch. Sorry, David, what? And, And then what happens? And then that goes where? So actually, I thought it was, I think it's relentless. I think it's ridiculous. I think it's uh, it's very, very sort of full-on sensory experience. The, the further away I get from it, the more I admire it. The further away I get from the experience of watching it, which I have to say I found, you know, almost oppressive, the more impressive I find it. I can imagine that it will provoke, I know already that some people have been in screenings in which it's provoked walkouts. I know some people have been in screenings in which it's provoked gales of sniggering laughter. And, you know, as you said, in your interview, when it played at was it Venice? Uh, yes, uh, that apparently uh, booze and wild applause. Booze, booze and wild applause, which is what you know. That, that's what festival movies do, as, boo- as in B O O S rather than Z. booze. Yes, yeah, sorry, not as in yes, uh, trebles all round. I think it's I think it's a very impressive piece of oppressive work. As I said, relentless, ridiculous, garish, disgraceful, disorientating, delirious. Other words that begin with D. And the more I think about it, the more I find in it. Yes. 
Well, that's... Yeah, I, I can see that everything that you said is very wise. Thank you. And I hated it. <laughs> I know you did, uh, so, because that was literally that you sent me a text which said, I hated it. But what I but I agree with you. I, admi- I admired the construction of the nightmare. OK. I just didn't want to be in the nightmare. But Jennifer Lawrence, as you said last week to Darren Aronofsky, is never anything other than completely compelling. And Javier Bardem is extremely good. And Ed Harris, never let him in. Just never let him in if he comes knocking. Yeah. When you watched it, were you thinking about the despoiling of Mother Earth? Were you thinking about the biblical story? I were you thinking I about... I was just thinking... Were you just thinking, just get them out of the house? Yes. Just get them out why, of the house? Why have you let these people... Why have you let these... Can't you see what you're doing? There was an, inter- there was an interview with um, Will Gompertz on the BBC in which Jennifer Lawrence said... He was in the same screening that I was. Oh, OK, fine. Yeah. Well, Jennifer Lawrence said to him, while you're watching it, you're going to want to scream, just get them out of the house! And I did feel exactly that. Incidentally, I watched the movie sitting next to somebody who I could feel hating it. So that made it even more oppressive because, you know, sometimes you can kind of feel somebody's yeah. negative energy seeping out. I should have sat next to you in it. Uh, but I, I like I think it's I think it's really something. Julia, <laughs> I well, I think it's something <laughs> as well. And the further I get away from it, the happier I am. <laughs> Julia McKinnell in Sydney. There are many ways one could read Darren... Uh, Darinovsky's mother. In fact, Darinovsky. I think I we are going to call him Darinovsky. Feminist critique of the male ego, a condemnation yes. of mindless consumerism of our planet's resources, yes. or a skewering look at organised religion's concept and use yes. of God. It does turn into Tommy, incidentally, in the final sections. It had lost me, really. Does it? Yeah, there's more at the door, there's more at the door. You know, definitely. For me, as a rather socially anxious introvert, the film perfectly articulated my worst nightmare, the invasion of a safe space by unknown people. Jennifer Lawrence is wonderful in the role as mother. You can tell what she is feeling by the smallest flicker of an eyelid or closing of lips. The film felt both Lynchian and yes, Boonwellian. It so did, both means... those. Well, Lynchian, as in, you know, Eraserhead, the groaning, plumbing, the, the building, living. Boonwellian, as in he cited Boonwell, I think he's referring to the exterminating angel, which is a story about a group of people together in a room who can't get out and then things start to turn very, very bad. And surrealism. In its confined setting, a narrative logic that at times leaves you wondering how on earth did we get to this, yet it makes sense in the moment. Mother is certainly going to divide opinion. (laughs) I really liked it, but as I was leaving the cinema, I heard a fellow patron telling the usher that it was a shocker. A shocker. This, along with Raw and Get Out, which uh, could have also been the name uh, for this film, marked 2017 as a strong year for great horror films. I thought it was a horror film. You dis- I didn't think of it as a horror film. I mean, I think, you know, it, it is definitely, it becomes something which is horror-inflected, but I didn't think it was a horror film, it, although it clearly plays into horror. It's just that when people say it's a horror film, it, th- that's one part of it. Do one more, and then we can pick this up after the news. Jacob okay. uh, Luce, I went to see Mother at the excellent Toronto Film Festival on Monday. It's been a whole week, and I've since returned to the UK, but I'm still not sure what to make of it. it, it I would say that I was gripped for the first two thirds of the film. As an audience, we feel Jennifer Lawrence's increasing desperation at seeing more and more uninvited guests entering. And you home. start to feel her panic. Absolutely. You know, her absolute rising tide of panic. The camera work reinforces this, meaning that yeah, the audience sees the events that play out entirely from the mother's perspective. I thought in the final third of the film, Aronofsky pushes the whole concept a little too far. This may be a deliberate attempt to make the film polarising and controversial, but 
I thought it compromised the whole thing. I felt like Aronofsky was torturing the mother and the audience, and I'm not sure what the point of it all was. That being said, this was a truly fabulous performance from Jennifer Lawrence, perhaps the best of her career so far. The film as a whole didn't work for me, but I'd say it's worth the price of admission to see her performance. You're listening to a BBC Five Live podcast. Kermode Mayo's Film Review. If you like this, you might also like this. The Five Live Consumer Team, featuring Martin Lewis. Does it have to be this complicated? Sometimes I make it more complicated because I want to dot all the I's and T's. To find out more about our range of podcasts, click, tap or swipe bbc.co.uk slash five live. Hey, Mark, did you know... Hey, Simon. ...that on Radio 4's much-loved and appreciated Desert Island Disc... Are you on? No, 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 Paul Greengrass is on. Oh, I don't care about him. Oh, OK. I love Paul Greengrass. That's fabulous. So when's he on? This Sunday, I believe, whenever oh, it's on. Brilliant. Yes, 11.15, it normally turns up. Fantastic. Do we have any any tips on what his... I don't know what what, what music Paul likes at all, actually. No, it would be quite interesting. I, I would imagine a little bit of punk attitude... You think? In there. Some prog? I don't think... It, no, my guess will be... There won't be a lot of choral symphonic works. It'll be Hocus Pocus by Focus. Let's hope so. Okay. Uh, anyway, just... Uh, I thought that'd be quite interesting. So that's, that's Paul Greengoss on Desert Island Discs at... 11.15. But that's on, on, on Sunday. It's 11.15 in the morning. OK, but you can listen to it on... Listen again. Uh, so, uh, TV movie of the week. Yes. Graham Phillips, airline pilot at KLM Royal Dutch Airlines. You feel... I, I'm like this after reviewing Mother. I'm like... <sighs> I know, I'm exhausted just thinking, know, just, just, thinking it's just listening to me. As I say to my colleagues on the flight deck before every landing, I just want to say good luck, we're all counting on you. <laughs> That's very good. Daniel Pacey, I, IMDb scored Black Swan, Gravity and Slumdog at nine, but given that Darinovsky was on last week, I'm going to go for Black Swan. I'll go out on a bit of a limb in a strong week and suggest that Mark is going to go for The Innocents. Phil Hoyle, I think Super 8 would be a good companion piece to it. And what were the news that J.J. Abrams will direct the next Star Wars episode nine? It's topical too. I thought Super 8 was wonderful. So did I. What a top film. So did I. Herbie Cuff says, I do like gravity, but I wonder if it would suffer on the small screen. Personally, I'd go for blue is the warmest colour. Uh, Dr. Kermode uh, will go for Ferris Bueller as an 80s chaser to uh, to his pick of Footloose from a fortnight ago. John Dixon, for me, it would have to be Gravity because when I first saw the movie, it left me dizzy with glee. Dizzy with glee. It's That's precisely the sort of film I'd like to make if I had an ounce of ability and indeed $100 million to play with. Mark, I imagine, will pick Black Swan to celebrate the arrival of Aronofsky's new Pitch Black Shockfest mother. Is that what we're calling it now, Pitch Black Shockfest? That's what John calls it. I think that's the, that's the name of a, of a festival that Alan Jones runs, isn't it? Uh, and John... Gilfillan. John Gilfillan? John, anyway. Always have to go with a few good men. Snappy Sorkin dialogue and Jack Nicholson's epic performance, but I suspect the good doctor, him indoors, will choose Black Swan just because. What is our TV movie of the week? Black Swan, just because. Because we've just had that conversation about Aaron Daronofsky. Somebody pointed out that if if, uh, Darren Aaron Aronofsky married Sharon Stone, it would be Darren Darren and Sharon Aronofsky. (laughs) That would be quite a nice. It thing. would have been good, and I think I believe the. I, I believe the position uh, is already filled. I think Ms. Lawrence right. and Ms. Uh, Aronofsky are an item at the moment, so I don't think. Well, I'll leave that to you and your gossip. No, no, no. I, don't, I, I, I believe that to be. Yes, no, it's fine. I, I know nothing. Because and that, when when is thing. Black Swan on? Black Swan is on Sunday on Film Four at a quarter past one in the morning. Okay, I might record it then. 
So but you've seen it before, haven't you? Uh, I've seen half of it, I think. What? How have you seen half of Black Swan? I, I, I genuinely have no idea. But I'll try and see the other half. But you did, was it on television? You kind of walked on out pl- of it. No, on a plane, I think. OK. Black Swan's on a plane. Very interesting. <laughs> that would be... That a would be a film. That's the follow-up. <laughs> Nine- Samuel Jackson stars in Black Swan's on a plane. Yes. 19 minutes to four o'clock. What else is out? American Assassin. Um... Based on a character uh, about uh, whom uh, Vince Flynn apparently wrote uh, umpteen books, which I haven't read, and on the evidence of American Assassin, I'm not entirely sure we're going to be seeing an entire series of these sweeping to our screens. So, uh, Dylan O'Brien is the uh, titular assassin. In the opening moments, he proposes to his girlfriend on an idyllic beach setting, just in time to witness a horrible button-pushing uh, tragedy that then becomes the thing that the story uses to justify his Death Wish-style vengeance streak. He goes underground, uh, investi- uh, sort of infiltrating uh, evil terror cells until he's picked up by the CIA, who need a man with exactly his set of skills. Partic- he's got a particular set of skills. Has he? And, uh, and they need it. Obviously, you know, we've all seen this film before because he's not keen, but they're not giving him any choice. And so it's time for a training montage. Here it is. Victor, you're up. Let's go. You gotta have eyes in the back of your head. You clinch, you die. Brian is about the mission. It ain't about you. You go down out there, you're a ghost. You don't exist. There's nobody, nobody coming back for you. Dun, dun, dun. So Michael Keaton just chews the scenery with all the relish of a man who's, you know, who's proved himself in Birdman and also the founder. Did you see the founder? You know when you ask me a question. OK, sorry. You know that film you didn't see, The Founder? I've, yes. Michael Keaton's actually pretty... That one. He's pretty good in it, yeah. And in this, it's just like, you know, he is a character who laughs in the face of danger, even when danger comes wielding a pair of pliers. Is he better and than when he's in Mr. F- that Snowman film? Snow Dad's better than No Dad. <laughs> Still his best performance. Did you bring that up with him in the interview? I don't think so. Yeah. You didn't mention that? OK, fine. Um, and he looks like he's having fun, uh, which is good because it's more than the rest of us are having. The weird thing about this is it's directed by Michael Cuesta, who is in the, in the past he's made... Um, some interesting films, some films which, you know, have sort of substance and, uh, you know, a certain amount of kind of subversiveness to them. It looks, in the case of this, that he's just clearly decided that it's come time to, uh, you know, to cash in and hit something which attempts to combine the young adult market with the latter-day death wish market and ends up, and I'm not the first person to point, point this out, I mean, everybody's saying this, it basically looks like a Chuck Norris, Chuck Bronson film, but without Chuck Norris or Chuck Bronson in them. And since most of the Chuck Norris, Chuck Bronson films, the best thing about them was Chuck Norris and Chuck Bronson, if you get a Chuck Norris, Chuck Bronson film without them in it, you feel like a bit like, what's the point of that? And... Needs Chuckles Branner then. Needs Chuckles Branner. The strange thing was that for all the sort of, I mean, it's preposterous nonsense, but sometimes you get these things in which they they are, they can be preposterous nonsense, but they can also be sort of quite fun preposterous nonsense. This isn't. It's quite boring. And, um, and, you know, it, it, it does that weird thing about sort of attempting to just sort of beat the audience into submission and... Being uninteresting and preposterous, but also preposterously dull at the same time. Now, I have to say that the shortcomings of it, 
were made all the more evident by the fact that I saw it back to back with this film, The Villainess, by Byung Gil, Gil Jung. And this is an extraordinary uh, piece of work. Um, in the opening scene, we see some. We see from the point of view of you know an, another assassin, a non-American assassin, uh, uh, sort of making their way through a building that is absolutely full of baddies, dispensing with uh, opponents in a manner which makes the corridor scene from Old Boy look like a looks like a scene from a Harold Pinter film. It's and then what happens is the reveal is oh this is the villainess. And it's the story of uh, Kim Up-Bin's Femme Fatale Suk-hi, who is forcefully recruited at a very young age to become a trained assassin. So, obviously, from a sort of cinematic precedent point of view, you start thinking of Nikita, or La Femme Nikita, as I think it's called in other territories. It was released over here as Nikita, which was uh, then remade. There was an English-language version of it that was then uh, remade, starring Bridget Fonda, as far as I remember. And the Femme Nikita is that same thing, but the story about somebody who is, you know, who is basically forced to become, uh, you know, a trained killer, and but they're also trying to lead a normal life. The arrangement at this time is that, you know, 10 years has to be done, and then after that, she will, uh, she will have her freedom. Um, and there is, in fact, there's a scene in it which very directly references Nikita, or La Femme Nikita, in which it, it, you end up with her in a wedding dress, putting together high-powered weaponry, which very much refers back to that scene from Nikita, the bathroom scene from Nikita, which is actually probably the most memorable scene from the film. It has an operatic narrative which is extraordinarily overwrought, overcranked, hysterical. It's funny, we're talking about this, you know, in the same week as, as Mother is out. And it's a film in which the, the sort of the tenor of the film, the tone of the film, in terms of that everything turned up to 11, is, is similarly overcranked. Um, when it played at Film Festival, I think it was Cannes, the report was the first time it was played, it got a four-minute standing ovation. And you can understand why, because in terms of its uh, fight scene choreography, it is quite breathtaking. It is, it's got that sort of, you know, inventive, choreographed, uh, mayhem, anarchy feel to it that really does take your breath away. Weirdly enough, the, the, the plot becomes so labyrinthine and so twisting that you lose track sometimes of exactly where you are in the narrative and the twists and turns are so you know beyond preposterous but during the fight sequences and i've made this you know this reference before that if you're watching a well choreographed movie like that it is like watching ballet it is like watching dance it is and again this takes us off to to black swan and darren aronofsky everything's tying up very nicely isn't it nice, this week? Nicely it's almost as if we planned it which i genuinely haven't um, but there is this sort of sense of kinetic, you know, visceral energy happening. And it was really weird because I saw it almost immediately after American Assassin. And I saw Robbie Collin afterwards. And uh, Robbie Collins said, I'm maybe misquoting, but he said something on the lines of, you know, it, it just feels completely wrong, those two movies being in, you know, having to, having to watch those two movies back to back because one of them just like, literally, literally wipes the floor with the other one. Not literally, I do understand. Wipes the floor with the other one and goes, no, if you, you want to do, this is what that actually looks like. It, it, is, it is breathtakingly audacious in its, in its fight choreography. It is hysterical and histrionic and operatic and it's called The Villainess. Um just on American Assassin, uh, Steve Clark. This is not a good film. It starts. No, it's with, not a good film. It starts okay, quite dramatic, gets rubbish and unconvincing. Very <laughs> gets rubbish. 
lowers expectations and then levels out at meh, solid two-star, and then it goes nuts. And Michael Bay, where did that ending come from? Yeah, I know. The yeah, film the, is rubbish, yeah. but then the ending is really rubbish. Okay, I, I, I'm, I'm, sli- I'm slightly staying away from talking about the ending because, in a way, and you, you want to get into that kind of plot spoiler thing, but, yeah, the ending, the ending is... <sighs> The ending is one of those things that you just go, what? You however, know, really? however, however, George Knott went to see American Assassin last night at the Showcase Cinema Deluxe in Winnish, where the seats are unbelievably comfortable as they recline with footrests. I'm glad I didn't see a film like Transformers here, otherwise I would have definitely fallen asleep. However, the film was exciting and thrilling enough to hold my attention. It exceeded my expectations with solid action set pieces scattered throughout that attempted to do something different through the camera angles and editing, where the script was a bit too rushed. Oh, come on. Jumping from scene to scene with a slight confusion of what's going on. American Assassin is definitely worth a watch. Some good performances from Dylan O'Brien and Michael Keaton. Yeah, no. Just uh, in the interest A of- very boring performance by Dylan O'Brien. A performance by Michael Keaton that looks for all the world like a man who knows there's a large paycheck uh, waiting for him at home. And so, frankly, he's going to enjoy himself even if nobody else is. So it's ten minutes to four o'clock. What else is out? Let's do My Pure Land, which has just been announced as the UK entry for the Foreign uh, Language uh, Film Oscar. Uh, last year, I think it was Under the Shadow. Directed by uh, Simon Masood and uh, shot in rural Pakistan, produced by Bel- Bill Kenwright. So Bill Kenwright's... Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, story of a group of women, a mother, two daughters, defending their homestead from a gang of armed men led by the daughter's unscrupulous uncle. And the men are trying to take possession of this homestead. The women are defending the homestead, which they insist they have the papers to, they have the rights to. The police are entirely on the side of the invaders. And um, as the, the sort of as the siege plays out, the film flashes backward and forward to fill out the backstory, to give us context of the characters, to explain where they came from and how they, they got to here. And it's an interesting film. It kind of attempts to balance two things, which is on the one hand, there is the it's it's balancing between sort of art house and action suspense story. It does pull off the balance quite well. It's like a socio-political backdrop with a siege of trenches farm narrative. Very well played, I have to say, by the ensemble cast. And um and it's shot by this guy Hader Zaffer. Interesting thing about Hader Zaffer, I don't know whether you remember this, but when um uh, there was a Danny Dyer film that came out some while ago called Vendetta. Called what? Vendetta. Oh, Vendetta. Yeah. And it's terrible. And I said, but, you know, the thing about it is, it is a terrible film, but it is really well shot. This, I, the, the cinematographer is this guy called Hezaf, and, I, you know, I think he's, he's, he's clearly got something because he really sort of brings something to the film um, that gives it a gloss which, you know, which belies its, its very low-budget origins. And he's done a whole load of those kind of movies. And now he's ended up uh, doing this. I think he's also directed a film and he's a really, really terrific cinematographer. And he's got a real way of capturing. Um, and I was reminded, although it'd be only me who's reminded, I was reminded of watching those early straight to video erotic thrillers made by Greg Dark that were shot by Wally Pfister. And going, you can say what you like about these films. Whoever this Wally Pfister guy is, he really knows how to shoot. And I feel the same way about uh, Hayden Zephyr. So, uh, how many more movies do you want to do? By the way, well, can, I mean, I can do as many as you want. Okay. Do you want to do a little? Do you want to do a little bit of Mother, and then I can do uh, maybe Jungle Bunch, or you know? Here's an interesting email from Tessa Barber, Mark and Simon. Yes, I've just come out of a big scream where parents are allowed to bring in their new babies. Okay, 
It's a screening of Mother at the Ritzy Cinema in Brixton. I, I mean, really? I, yeah, I would say of all the oh, films for heaven's sake that you would want to put on. No, no, no. For new parents and babies, this would not be the one I'd. Yeah, do. that's really. That's, anyway, that's, felt, that's not good. I felt compelled. That's to, really not good to write in for the first time to offer of a, a, a review. Uh, I'm a recent, recently turned first time mother, accompanied by my daughter. I was indeed holding and breastfeeding my new baby whilst watching Jennifer Lawrence's character do the same on screen, bringing a whole new level to the idea of immersive cinema that even secret cinema could not achieve. <laughs> Having heard of Jennifer Lawrence <laughs> hyperventilating, which you we were talking about uh, on the show last week, I started off by thinking, oh, come on, it's not that bad. Thoughts which two hours later turned into, to be fair, that's pretty bad. <laughs> Part Rosemary's Baby, part New Testament, with a little bit of Life of Brian thrown in. The film was visceral and enticing. Part Old Testament as well. Yes, whether this was because of Aronofsky's skills as a filmmaker or the added dimension of having my own babe attached to me throughout is debatable. But as the credits rolled up, I realised I'd been clinging on to her quite tightly and had to peel some of my embedded fingernails out of her leg. Though I kept finding myself trying to work it all out all the time, rather than just watching and enjoying... Okay, so can I just say, watching and enjoying no, is, I, not the, is not, not the phrase chose. that I would use for Staying for the end credits cleared up a few things. Uh, the film takes you to new places and landscapes throughout. Well, that's, the be- that's it from Tessa. All the best from a new film-going mother. Wow. Which shows remarkable... Robustness. Calmness it does. and robustness. But that, that just goes to demonstrate, doesn't it? If you want somebody to, you know, ask somebody who's raised children, because they, they'll be calm. They'll be calm. They've been through all this stuff before. They'll be calm. I remember, um, I, completely tangential, I went uh, to uh, a Lucia Fulci zombie movie and I took my sister uh, and I thought it was really sort of foul and full on and I was very worried that she was going to be upset and I said... Oh, you know, were you upset by it? She went, no, no, no I'm, a, you know, I'm, I'm a medic. And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, all the, all the, all that stuff. It was all wrong. It was all, it was all, it was all medically wrong. So it didn't bother her at all. She just looked at all the stuff that was happening. Went, that's not right. <laughs> but you, but you'd have to say of all the films, that yes, Mother moment, would not be the one to. In yeah. general, I mean, full marks to you, Tessa. But in general, I wouldn't recommend. No. That as a mother no. maybe screening. No, I wouldn't. Uh, okay, so uh, what else? Um, shall I... Do, I tell you what, I'm going to jump ahead of Jungle. I'm going to do The Case for Christ, okay? So this is based on a bestseller by uh, Lee Strobel, based, played here by Mike Vogel. This is a faith-based film, okay? Story is, he's a hard-hitting investigative journalist who believes in just the facts. His newspaper has a motto, which is, if your mum says she loves you, check it out. That's what they do. And uh, then one night, true story, one night out with the wife and daughter, daughter starts choking on a gobstopper, you know, a, a candy. And somebody comes along and manages to get the gobstopper out. And uh, they say, wow, it's so because she's a nurse at the hospital. They say, it's incredibly lucky that you're here. And she says, nothing to do with luck. I was going to another restaurant, but I felt a message. Um, you know, I'm a Christian and I felt that I was sent here for a purpose. The next thing that happens is he's an atheist. His wife starts to think that actually maybe there was something divine working through this. And she decides to convert to Christianity. He is absolutely outraged. And uh, so he decides that the way he's going to stop her doing that is he's going to investigate Christianity, you know, like a proper journalist. And he's going to debate bunk it by proving that it's all nonsense. Here's a clip. One of my heroes was C.S. Lewis, a man who began as a skeptic, much like yourself. At the end of his journey, you know what he said? He said, if Christianity is false, it's of zero importance. But if it's true, there's nothing more important in the entire universe. So you want your wife back? Well, hey, guess what? People in hell want ice water. Not everybody gets everything they want. Stop blaming me and the church and God and do your job. Stack up the evidence, follow the facts, and write the story, win or lose. 
You were rolling your eyes so far that you almost went into the back of your head. Well, it's, you know... Uh, no, I know. So You picked a scene there. And, well, no, that, but that is, you know, that, that's kind of the tone of the film. So the, th- the thing is this. For a start, it's very, very easy to sneer at faith-based movies. And I've said this thing before that when I was going to see uh, The Shack, I did, I did write I a, a note to myself which said, don't sneer. It was quite hard not to when it did turn into Star Trek Goes to Heaven because the film in which Star Trek Goes to Heaven is Star Trek V in which Captain Kirk picks a fight with God and God loses and Captain Kirk wins. That's the film. I think it was actually directed by William Shatner. I like a scene in which I I go go head-to-head with the Almighty. It's not really the Almighty. It's somebody pretending to be the Almighty. Uh, And in the case of this, I mean, this is certainly better than Sam Worthington, you know, in a shack with the Father, Son and Holy Ghost as represented by characters who then teleport up into a Star Trek universe. And... I think of all of the of all of the faith based movies that we've seen recently, it's it's one of the better ones in as much as you know it has a story about somebody. In, you know, in other hands, in other circumstances, people might sort of read that story differently. The problem is this: you know, obviously, you know. Let me ask you a question. You haven't seen this film, right? No, no, I haven't. You haven't read this book, right? No, I haven't. No. Do you think he disproves the case? My guess is that would be unlikely. Okay. What do you think happens at the end? My guess is that he realises that his wife is right and that he also decides to convert. Fine. So, in I a, ha- But I haven't seen No, it you either. haven't seen the film, and I'm not going to tell you whether that is what happens or whether it isn't what happens. Or there could be a spaceship that comes down and kills them all. No, that doesn't happen either. Okay. okay. But it's... So within, within the construct of the kind of thing that you know how the films are going to pan out, you know how the stories are going to pan out because you know what the, you, you know what the message is, it's, it's one of the better ones. It's, you know, it's, it's put together properly. It's constructed quite slickly. There are the moment at the beginning when they're in the restaurant. I didn't know where the story was going. You know, I was I was actually I was worried for the child. And it attempts as much as is possible to balance itself as a, as a as a proper drama. So you can so, only say, is it a good film or is it not a good film? So it sounds as though it is. A it's good film. it's not a good film, but it's a perfectly moderate film. And certainly in terms of the field in which it operates, it's one of the better of those films. So our movie... That's the, the definition of mealy-mouth, yeah, it isn't is. it? Well, that is our movie of the week. Mother! OK, well... And what's uh, your movie of the week, Simon? Anything else? <laughs> I'll go for Victoria and Abdul. Uh, this has been a Something Else production for BBC Radio 5 Live. Next week, Taron Egerton talks Kingsman, The Golden Circle and why John Denver is taking over movie soundtracks. Hank Mazzell... It's like a one note song. In fact, there's two notes in the entire song. We're gonna hear a mini meaning in a mini mini booning and ding 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 um, which I think is the opening track on Come On, Feel the Lemonheads. And it's literally, it's one note. It's just... All the way there, and it's absolutely perfect. There's right. no other right. notes needed, because it's just brilliant. It's like a, it's like fantastic pops. It was when the Lemonheads were at their absolute pop-tastic best, and it is a brilliant guitar song, and it is one note. All the best from Canada, says Stefan. This is Stefan Fritz. 
Uh, dear Malenkov and Khrushchev, long-time listener, second-time emailer, originally from Germany, I'm writing you today from the Toronto International Film Festival, where I spend 12 days to see 40 to 50 movies every September since 2009. Uh, I'm reporting a wittertainment-related incident. I was lucky enough to attend the world premiere of Amanda Inucci's new film, The Death of Stalin. Which features Jason Isaacs as me. It's a great movie, delivering everything you'd expect from the world's leading satirist, and the cast is absolutely delightful. Amanda is going to be on this show uh, next month. Great, you must ask him about that because Jason Isaac said he based his performance in that film or his look, his hair, the on ha- me. Okay, the premiere on Friday afternoon in a packed theatre was introduced by TIFF, as in the Toronto International Film, yeah, yeah. artistic director Cameron Bailey, also known as probably the best dressed man in the film business. I've met Cameron Bailey, he is a very, very fine man. Before he acknowledged the festival sponsors and said a few words about the film and his writer director, he greeted the audience with a warm welcome and then added, and hello to Jason Isaacs. Hey! Jason is part of the cast and was, besides Steve Buscemi, Rupert Friend and the wonderful Andrea Riseborough, present at the screening. Didn't he come in and watch a, a programme being being made? He did, fine. So, yeah, he came in and watched the programme being done. The audience did not react in any recognisable way, so either there weren't any other members <laughs> of the church in the theatre or... that day or the typical Canadian restraint kept them from displaying a response. I suspect that's the yeah, case. They should just let it all oot. So, as you can see, Mr Bailey might be a wittertaining... I didn't know what it was about. Thank you, Stefan. You made it sound more Scottish than Canadian, uh, by the way. Polly says, OK, so your condemnation of the trouser-removing cinema-goer has me worried. Have I committed an unforgivable breach of the code as well? Did you take your trousers off in the cinema? If so, yes. Next. To set the scene, I was eight months pregnant and desperate to see as many films as possible before the baby arrived. (laughs) Right. My difficulty was that I was... Well, you know, now with mother and baby screenings of mother, you have nothing to worry about. It turns out you can see anything you want. That I became very ill very quickly if I got too hot. My local cinema's air conditioning simply couldn't cope with the heat generated by my enormous bump. And I was having to run out to the car park to stop myself fainting. It looked like my cinema-going days were prematurely over, but I wasn't ready to give up. So I started going to the cinema dressed in the following. Sandals, maternity leggings and a floaty tunic dress. Once the lights went down, I would roll up my dress and expose my huge bump to the air. The sheer mass of exposed skin ensured I stayed cool throughout the film. And this worked until my last film viewing at five days overdue. Uh, thank you, Fantastic Beasts, and where to find them. I think that's fine. I am now very concerned that by getting my tummy out, I've breached the code. Is no. this as bad as taking one's trousers? No. Does the church know of better ways for heavily pregnant women to keep cool at the cinema? No. You're... If I am excommunicated, does this apply to my child also, as really it was all his fault? He's a member of the fine church now, having listened to the podcast at least 48 hours old, at the age of 48 hours old and being a regular at baby cinema yeah no you're absolutely fine that is absolutely your right and your prerogative well done well done you i nearly said in that that was as, as a reference to a competition not in the patronizing yes. way that it sounds uh do they have they done mother and babies of prevenge i wouldn't have thought so but I, you know no that's that's fine that's absolutely fine if We're the good. lights are down yeah no it's fine not a problem not a problem absolutely decree that that is not a problem i also think there is a general rule which is that if you are if you are pregnant you you know you get a you get a pass on everything right you get a it's like you know fine well unless whatever she, makes you feel comfortable but what if she'd taken her trousers off i don't think she would have done because i don't think that would have made her feel comfortable yeah but i don't think whatever Whatever, if you're pregnant, whatever. So either whatever or not whatever. What's it going to be? 
Oh, you've gone all. You've gone all aggressive. I think the chances of that happen. No, I think that you know. I, I, what I still can't get my hat on about is why did the guy take his trousers off? Because that isn't how you cool down. No, you take your top off. Well, exactly. Sitting there without exactly, a shirt, which is which what, would have been horrible and but, but, unnecessary, but slightly more fine. But you know, I've never, I've never in my life said I'm really hot. I'll just get my hex off next time I go to the cinema. I'm going to take some wet wipes. For the seat, because you never know if that person, the trouserless person, is going to be in there. Ugh. Anyway, DVD of the week coming up. However, you haven't finished, have you? You've got more things to tell us about. Oh, have I? Okay. Well, I can tell you about Jungle, Jungle, no, Jungle. The Jungle Bunch, isn't that what you're going to do? Yeah, that's what I was saying. I can tell you about Jungle, Jungle, Jungle. Well, why don't you tell bunch. us then? <sighs> we haven't got Spin- all day. Spin off from a TV thing that was then a series in 2010, a big hit in France, Italy, apparently. Maybe it'd been a big hit. I hadn't heard of it before. Um, the filmmakers say that it is an animated uh, animal romp. It's like the Hair Bear Bunch. Sadly, no, although, yeah, I can see where, you, where you're coming from. I'll tell you what is like the Hair Bear Bunch, is uh, uh, Bjorg McEnroe. Anyway, um, uh, the filmmaker said, I believe in its success is largely due to our determination to address the entire family, even if our first public remains, of course, children. That is clearly- Bjorg, by the way, a combination of Bjorn and Borg. What did I say? Bjorg McEnroe. No, Borg. The film is called Borg McEnroe. Borg McEnroe. Yeah, I think you said Bjorg. Did I? Oh, sorry. That's, you know... Sometimes it's Borg versus McEnroe in some territory. Yeah, but the film is called Borg McEnroe, isn't it? Or Borg versus McEnroe in some territory. Oh, it's not called that here. But we're not doing it this week, are we? No, we're not doing it no. this week, no. Anyway, the Hair Bear Bunch, yes. <sighs> I've cleared that up. Anyway... Um, Maurice is a penguin who's been raised by a tiger. Really? And his mum used to be part of a vigilante jungle force, but now she's retired to raise the penguin. But Maurice wants to follow in her footsteps, particularly when an evil koala bear starts destroying the jungle with magic exploding mushrooms. Excellent. This sounds like my kind of film. Want to hear a clip? Yes, please. Was the mission good? Awesome, guys. Everyone was great as usual. <laughs> Glad to be back, though. This has been quite a hike. No problem. We've made you a delicious snack to perk you up. And voila, special lukewarm, freshly squeezed cockroach juice for everyone. <laughs> oh, thank you. A beautiful ficus flower as a garnish. And the floating things are? Those are marinated slugs. They help balance out the sourness. Okay, let's toast. The signal. What a shame. We can't even try your taste treats. But duty calls the Jungle Bunch to the rescue. I spent a certain amount of time trying to figure out what was going on, why there was a koala using magic mushrooms to destroy the jungle and wage war on a penguin painted as a tiger. And then I lost interest. And then I tried to concentrate on the visuals. And then they just reminded me how much I liked Madagascar more than I thought I'd like Madagascar when I first saw it and I kept wanting the entire cast of Madagascar to arrive in that flying thing that they make in whichever Madagascar film it is but then they didn't and then somebody down the row from me fellow critic was using his phone he was emailing his phone kept lighting up and uh, being very very bright and I I sorely wanted to say, can you stop doing that? Because, you know, it's really bothering me. But then I thought, actually, the annoyance is keeping my attention level up because the film isn't doing that. So I watched the rest of the film being prodded into alertness by a colleague's mobile phone. 
and then it all stopped. Right. I'm glad we, uh, glad we spared some time for that. Look, I, you know, I sat through the film and now you can sit through my review. Thank you very much indeed. So let's move on then to the final item on the agenda. Any other business? OK, so the other thing is there's Close Encounters reissue. Close Encounters is coming back. Well, that Close Encounters? That Close Encounters. Well, as opposed to which other Close Encounters? Well, they could have redone it. Well, well, it's redone as is, in as much as the re-edited version because there was, you know... <laughs> funny you should say that. Give her six quavers, then pause. She sent us four quavers, a group of five quavers, a group of four semi-quavers. have in common are five, six... I hope somebody's taking all this down. What are we saying to each other? Seems they're trying to teach us a basic tonal vocabulary. It's the first day of school, fellas. Isn't it lovely? Yeah, that could that could be uh, the new Five Live Travel jingle. <laughs> Do you think? Yeah. But anyway, so uh, back Played in... by Tubby the Tuba. Tubby the Tuba? Oh, said Tubby, how happy I am. Is that like Sparky's Magic Piano? Could you not tell? No, but is that like Sparky's Magic Piano? It's better than that. No, nothing's better than Sparky's Magic Piano. Sparky is great, but can you not guess which movie star this is? Oh, said Tubby, how happy I am. No. Come on. I I don't know. What is it? Who is it? What is it? Why am I? What's going on? It's Danny Kaye. Oh, I beg your pardon. Okay, no, I'm sorry. Now you say it's Danny Kaye. Obviously... That's the second. Let's see if we can find. Let's see if we can see if we can find. This is going to be a real, real tough gig. Can you find the very final section of Tubby the Tuber, Danny Kay, the little denouement? Can I just say that while they're finding that, yes, Sparky's Magic Piano has got one of the scariest things in it, Sparky. which is the bit when Sparky and you know I will play whatever you want, all that stuff. And he says, "Oh, this, but wow, Sparky, can I play you?" Yes, I can play one. And then if I play while I do the thing, he says, "Yes, I will play whatever." Then he goes, "For now." Yeah, it's like a demonic exactly, piano. which is exactly like hiya, Georgie. Sparky's magic piano will play whatever you want for now. And, and then, then when I'll it, take you down into the sewer. Exactly, and then when there's the bit when Sparky actually needs to play the piano for now. Is having none of it. That's very good. Now I'm for now. You spoiled a childhood memory forever. What an excellent day for an exorcism. Very good. Anyway, uh, would you uh, like to leave a message? I'll see she gets it. No, we can't find it. We're going to find it. We should find it. It might have to wait till next week. That's much too vulgar a display of power, Karis. Tell me the tube is a very sad story. Okay. Mm-hmm. Just I mentioned that. Thank you. Have they not found it? You're playing with emotions. Anyway, what did you want to say? I've said it. Is that it? Are you finished? Yeah, we're done now. Now you can now you can do DVD of the week. Oh, excellent. Okay. Fine, okay. Do you want to cue it then? I think it's time for what? 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 What is it time for? DVD of the week. Lovely. 
Hey Mark, hey Mark, hey Simon, hey Mark, hey Mark, hey Mark. I apologise, I'm really sorry, I apologise unreservedly, I offer a complete and utter retraction. The imputation was totally without basis, in fact, and was in no way fair comment, and was motivated purely by malice, and I deeply regret any distress that my comments may have caused you or your family, and I hereby undertake not to repeat any such slander at any time in the future. Yes, Mark, a fish called Wanda, 29 <laughs> years young this year, gets a special 4K restoration. Is that, is that like sort of 4,000... There's 4,000 copies of it. That's, 4, that's exactly what it is, yes. Actually, 4,000 quid. Uh, <laughs> and is surely a strong contender for DVD of the week. So what would you pick and what will Mark's choice be? Paul Matthews says, Mark may pick My Life as a Courgette, but A Fish Called Wonder is the one for me. Whether it's John Cleese's Russian poetry striptease, Kevin Klein's astonishingly arrogant Otto, or Michael Palin getting chips up his nose, it remains a brilliant film that continues to make me giggle. Devon, says Devon Tory Bryant, it has to be a fish called Wonder, maybe the best non-Monty Python, Monty Python movie because Terry Gilliam gets his own category. It was the final film directed by Ealing Studios' great Charles Crichton from a sharp and hugely quotable script. Um, John Cleese, Michael Palin and Jamie Lee Curtis all on top form. It's Kevin Klein's gleefully demented Academy Award-winning performance as Otto which steals the show. Apes don't read philosophy. Yes, they do, Otto, they just don't understand it. <laughs> Uh, Stephen Lockridge, Mark will probably pick my life as a courgette, but I will be shelling out on the excellent Miss Sloan. <coughs> Excuse me, really wasn't expecting much from this when I was dragged along to the cinema to see it, but I was gripped, especially with great performances from Jessica Chastain and the very lovely me, Mark Strong. Who knew politics could be so thrilling? Anyway, Mark, what is our DVD of the week? Well, I am going to go for my life as a courgette, which is one of my favourite films of this year and to any recent year. It's wonderful. It's uh, an adaptation of a, uh, of a book which I hadn't read, and uh, it's the script is written by Celine Ciamar, and it's one of those films that you can genuinely watch with a sort of younger audience and an older audience. It talks about difficult things. It talks about you know children in care homes who've been abused, who've been lost, who've been isolated, and yet it talks about them in a language which is completely universal. It's a stop-motion animation. The animation is heartbreaking. It's a Swiss-French production, and it is just brilliant. And get this, it's 61 minutes long. Now that is a five-star running time. Mark, you're a five-star reviewer of movies. I bet you say that to all your film critics. I don't have any other film critics in my life. Which, which meatloaf song was I referring to there? Uh, I don't know, what did you say? I bet you say that to all... Oh, yeah, yeah, I bet you yeah. say that to all the girls. Well done. On a hot summer night, night, would you give your throat to the wolf with the whatever it is, okay. with the red roses? And for it? everyone else who thought I was being a complete lunatic when I was doing what I claimed to be my Danny Kaye impression. Yes. Oh, said Tubby, how happy I am. <laughs> Reference is, of course, to this. How about me, said the xylophone. This is the conclusion, OK? Involves the whole orchestra. And me, said the trombone. I'm suddenly ten again. May I, said the celeste. That's a celeste. It is. Here I come, said people. But how's Tubby? What's, what's Tubby doing? And, and they, they all, all play! play. I'm welling up. Stand by, Mark. 
Is it coming anytime soon? <laughs> We've done it, haven't we, Toby? He's not there yet. It was the bullfrog sitting I can tell right beside not. him. I'm just going to start. Oh, thought Tubby, how happy I am. Hey! <laughs> That's all, folks. <laughs> See? I wasn't See? a complete lunatic. Mm. Mm. An incomplete lunatic. But oh. I love you anyway. Mark. What? Have a rock-on kind of solid week. Yeah, have a rock-on kind of solid week too. And uh, I'll see you next week. Laters. What? See you on the other side. See you on the other side, whatever that means.